The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. But listen anyway. Yes. Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. This is another episode of Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. Our show takes on the movie subgenres and films within them you forgot you even loved. And in this, our season two, our lens is focused on films about charming thieves. Today's film combines the shadows and neon of American film noir with the experimentation and grit of the French New Wave. Directed by a master of French crime movies, Jean-Pierre Melville, it stars screen veteran Robert Duquesne as a lovable gambler out for one last score, and newcomer Isabel Corey as the woman who might bring it all crashing down. Come take a gamble with us on this 1956 French-language heist picture. It's time for Bob Le Flambeur. And joining me via Zoom to up the level of conversation here on our show is a return subgenre guest host. He's a screenwriter, he's worked at many a Hollywood studio, and his name is Steve Baumgartner. Welcome back, Steve. Thank you, Josh. I'm very happy to be back on Subgenre Season 2. We're glad to have you here. I'm happy that you came back after Season 1 because we ask a lot of you. We covered Das Boat and we did it in two full-length episodes. I think I'm becoming like your king of subtitles for this show, actually. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're moving you from (laughs) German into French. Eventually, we'll just cover the entire span of the globe. Let's do it. I'm glad to have you here for this film because I think, as I may have said last season, and I will repeat this season, you are a person who I trust to talk about films that have some depth to them. It seems to me, and it's probably a mistaken impression, but it just seems to me that you really can't talk about French film in general and French New Wave, or at least the beginnings of French New Wave in particular, without having a little depth to them. And so that is part of the reason that I'm glad that you're here. The other reason is just you are a gentleman among gentlemen. <laughs> and maybe a gentleman thief. And maybe a gentleman thief. I don't know that. Yeah. You could be. I don't know what you yeah. do in your spare time. <laughs> That's right. I'm another coast away now. In season two, we are covering films about charming thieves. This gentleman thief trope about a certain type of dashing, daring do wrapped in a heist picture. There's just a certain type of person that embodies that trope. And Bob Le Flambeur, to me, isn't immediately or wasn't immediately the first thing I thought of that matches that trope. But after having watched it, I think there's a reason it's in here. What do you think? You know, it's funny because um, when you mention this picture, it does seem like it's a breed apart from a lot of the other movies you've covered. You know, I would not say Bob is dashing. I think it's also an extremely movie about milieu and character to some degree. But I don't think people see Bob the Flambeur and come away with it thinking of him as sort of a high style Cary Grant kind of guy in To Catch a Thief. No, he's not. He's not Cary Grant. He's not Thomas Crown. He's not Marty Bishop from Sneakers. He's not even Lupin the Third from Castle of Cagliostro, right? There, (laughs) There is some thread that binds all of those people together as different as they may be. But Bob as a character doesn't quite match all of those people. But I think the film in general works up against this particular trope. So that is the wrapping paper for what we are about to get into. This is, as we mentioned, a French language film. It is a film that was made back in the 50s, 56 to be specific. And there is a lot about it to know to kind of set the scene. So 
Steve, why don't you set the scene for us? First of all, I'm a big Melville fan. So if I start to yak a little too much, get me back on track. Well, I wondered about that. That was a question I meant to ask you because coming into this episode and preparing for this episode, I honestly and truly had never seen a Melville film. Basically, it is the first underworld picture directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh, He had done three previous pictures, but at this point, his career began to be really dominated by the genre. It wasn't exclusive, but he did movies like Le Delos and uh, Le Deuxième Souffle, Le Samurai, uh, Le Cercle Rouge, and Un Flic before he died at a relatively young age. This movie was co-written with Auguste Le Breton, who was really a great get from a production standpoint because he had written a crime novel, Durififi Chez Les Hommes, which had been a big international hit you might have heard of, Rafifi. Rafifi, yeah. Yeah, classic heist movie. Rafifi, international success. Bob Le Flambeur in America did not have a very easy time. It wasn't released here until 1959. And it might have been under the title that the current rights holder gives it as an AKA Fever Heat, which <laughs> Fever Heat to me sounds like it should have Sybil Danning in it or something yeah, like I think, that. I and, think I saw Fever Heat <laughs> late at night on Cinemax. Cinemax. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great minds. So it really didn't make an impression in America when it came out the first time. Now, 22 years later in 1981, Bob plays the New York Film Festival and the New York Times film critic, Vincent Canby, who was basically sort of the make or break guy when it came to art house pictures, decided that Bob was very funny and jaunty, which again, are not the words that I would choose, but apparently this might've influenced Columbia Pictures who they had their fledgling specialty arm Triumph, which just started up and they picked up the film for a reissue. They put it on a screen in Manhattan in June of 1982 and it underwhelmed and it disappeared quickly. In France though, it had a much better reception from the start. This was Melville's first uh, job as a producer, Mm -hmm. producing himself. And due to the ebbs and flows of financing, he shot the movie over a year and a half. The good news about is that, according to his autobiography, the film only cost a tenth of the average French feature at the time. So Melville made a good return on it. It was not a bomb, but it was not a smash. It was a mid-sized attraction. And eventually this moderate success left a massive national impact. As you mentioned, the French New Wave. This is considered a precursor to it. Reasons being, I would say, authentic location shooting, Mm -hmm. DIY aesthetic that Melville uses. Mm -hmm. The look of the movie, which uh, we should mention, Henri Takai, who shot this and also shot The 400 Blows. If listeners have seen The 400 Blows, they're going to be very familiar with this sort of black and white. Yeah, 400 Blows, Boys from Brazil is the other one that stuck out to me. Final thing is that this movie has a real respect and appreciation towards low-budget America genre pictures, like a lot of the new wave people did. Originally, Melville had an idea for this movie in 1950, but then he saw John Huston's noir, The Asphalt Jungle, and basically said, that's really good and so close to my idea that I don't think I'm going to rush down that path right now. So he waited five years. Now, over the years, um, you can see hallmarks of more familiar directors that harken back to Melville. Mm-hmm. You'll see traces of Michael Mann. You'll see uh, William Friedkin, John Woo, big supporter. And um, probably the most known name to our audience, uh, another guy who likes doing the uh, sort of downtime of career criminals who have, having a mundane conversation, Mr. Tarantino. Of course. Paul Thomas Anderson, his debut film, Hard Eight, has a lot of really strong echoes for this movie. And uh, this movie is actually remade once for an, an English language audience. Uh, Neil Jordan made it as a movie called The Good Thief in 2002. So before we jump in, the original French trailer of this movie describes it as a film of atmosphere. 
which I think is really spot on the money. Agreed. I've also seen people call it a comedy of manners. And at first I was like, really? But the more I watch this movie, the more I see it there. And I think it's not immediately apparent because of a couple of reasons. One, you know, it's got the subtitles. So your eyes are constantly being drawn to words at the bottom of the screen. If you don't speak French, as opposed to nuances of intonation and facial expression, but also the movie's got a very low key, naturalistic, not very inflected way of being. It's funny when I rewatched the movie, I was suddenly kind of realizing a lot of crime movies would really pump this up or really make a spectacle of this, that, or the other. And this movie is pretty quiet. So it's a good movie to spoil because because I think when your attention is not as focused on sorting through the plot and who the characters are, that's when you're going to be able to pick up the subtleties, which are really the seasoning that makes the meal. So that said, let's get spoiling. And right before we do, I want to make sure that we mention a couple of other names in here that stick out. Of course, we said that, you know, Jean-Pierre Melville is the director and um, one of the producers on this. One of the other producers we want to mention is Serge Silverman, um, Silverman, who was a producer on a couple of films you may have heard of, Kurosawa's Ron and uh, and Bunuel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. So not an inexperienced production team with Melville on this, as well as its stars. So it, and, and we'll talk more about these two people later on, but it stars Robert Duquesne as the titular character Bob and uh, Isabel Corey as the female lead in it, Anne, but some really interesting people involved in this outside of Melville. Duquesne? Um, you know what? Not... That's, I don't know. It, D-U-C-H-E-S-N-E. Duquesne, du- Duchesse, how were you pronouncing it? You were doing the French accent better than me. I think it might be Duchesne, but uh, Duchesne remember, it is, I, then. we didn't pronounce Das Boots the same way in any two sentences last That's year. True. So <laughs> You, don't, you so. don't come to this podcast for accuracy, Steve. That's not why people are here. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to be selling the legend instead of the facts, if need be. Duchesne, I think, is what we have settled on trying to go forward with, and that is what will lead us into our feature presentation. Of course, our feature presentation is Bob Le Flambeur. This is a movie podcast. We are going to be spoiling things. Know that going in. We're going to talk about the whole movie, but we're going to talk about it in a way. It's not going to matter if we spoil it. You're going to want to see it anyway. We start this film, this black and white film, we should say that, from 1956. We start, as you should, in a black and white film, in a black and white film noir, in the fog. We begin at the foot of Montmartre in Paris. The Sacré-Cœur Cathedral is up on the hill. We are down in the neighborhood of Pigalle, which is the sort of seedy end of that part of town in Paris. And we are descending in an inclinator from heaven, where the cathedral is, down into hell. If hell looks like 1950s Paris, you could do worse. Right, right. <laughs> it's full of neon. It's kind of atmospheric. Looks like there's a good diner there. You know, it could be okay. Yeah, it's almost quaint. It is exactly what you want it to be, I think, for this type of film. It's a place where anything could happen. And we have the requisite voiceover. Um, and that voice is Melville, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Oh, great. So Melville, our voiceover, introduces us to the neighborhood of Pagal. He introduces us to two women whose paths are crossing at that exact point, one who is a charwoman. I had to look up what a charwoman was, basically a housekeeper who is late for a job and a young girl, he says, very advanced for her age, who we see stop at the local espresso stand and buy some French fries. Remember, we're in Pigalle, which is the sordid part. So there's not one type of sailor 
hanging out there. There's two types of sailors. And later you see a soldier and they're all kind of hanging on the women who are waiting for their French fries. It looks quaint, but it's seedy. And so the type of young girl who would hang out at a place like this and not be afraid to do so, I think is where we get the advanced for her age comment from the voiceover. And she's also not afraid to when she hears somebody in English saying, come on, baby, come on. She gets on his motorbike and rides. I'm getting it. Is it English? Is it? (laughs) It was a French version of what an American soldier on a motorbike sounds like, I think. Yeah. So we have this young girl. We don't know who she is yet, but we know that this is an neighborhood where she is comfortable and where she lives. She hops on the back, like you said, of the the motorcycle of some American soldier and off they go. The next thing we get is our title character. Here comes Bob or Bob. We're talking French. It's Bob the Gambler, uh, Bob Le Flambeur. He is introduced as, quote, an old young man who was already a legend of the past. I should point out, actually, you watched the Amazon stream of this movie. I did. And I watched the Kino Lorber Blu-ray. Because you're so, fancier than me. <laughs> because Target had a three for the price of two <laughs> sale not too long ago. And so every once in a while, I'm going to have lines which might, I'll be curious if you have the same translation. Because yeah. that's one I wrote down also, but it's slightly different on the uh, Kino Lober. What does yours translate to? He's both young and old, already a legend, which is a nice introduction. Set the stage for this man. We get a sense of who Bob is pretty quickly. We see Bob at a gambling table. He's in a gambling parlor. This is where we will see Bob at home a lot in this movie because he is Bob the Gambler. So he's going to spend a lot of time at tables. He craps out. He's no good loses his money. This is the first of many times that Bob will lose his money throughout the course of this film, and that kind of is what he is known for to some degree. He gives us a line that we are going to get often in this film, which is that he needs to go sleep. And he leaves this uh, club a few dollars short. You know, he comes out of this back room into what is this sort of this nice front room. There's a mellophone player. It's like a little jazzy club. Sees his own face in a window and calls himself a real thug. It's a real thug's face, he says. I love the thing with the xylophone or the marimba or whatever it would be because you first hear it and it just sounds like background music. And the music in this movie is really like a scrap here and a scrap there. And so you hear the music, he goes to the next room and there's the person playing the music, which is something I always appreciate in the movie. There is another moment of that, I think, somewhere in this film. I'll see if I've noted it, but where that exact same thing happens again, where you get the background music and then he walks in. I think it's in the club, honestly. And he walks into the club and there's the person literally playing it. So yeah, it's, it is a nice use. Yeah. So off he goes. Off he goes through Pagal. He's going through the night fog. He is heading home, wherever that may be. It is at that moment, we sort of teased this earlier, but he sees this young girl who was eating French fries at the espresso stand. He sees her hop onto the back of a motorcycle of an American soldier or sailor or whoever this person with the bad accent is. And we get sort of this view of the neighborhood from the sky and we watch a street cleaning truck go in circles around the neighborhood, wetting the streets, wetting the concrete and showing us what time of day it is. It's morning. I also like this is basically sort of the old time square of Paris. Uh, there's all this neon and sight and saying Eve, 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 or Les Naturistes, which I think means the nudists. The nudists, and, yeah. Uh, and my personal favorite, the nudes, the most daring in the world. That's really the only kind you want. I don't like those timid nude people. That's right. Correct. He buys himself a newspaper. Everyone that he passes seems to know Bob, right? The, mm-hmm. new, the news guy knows him. The guy at the front of the club knows him. Random people on the street know him. Hey, Bob. Hey, Bob. Hey, Bob. The surprising person who knows him as well is a police inspector uh, who we will come to know as Ledru, L-E-D-R-U, Ledru, who is in the back of a cop car and says, 
hey, Bob, let me give you a ride to your next place. And Bob does. Hops in the back of a police car, has a friendly conversation with the inspector. They are heading to one of Bob's regular haunts, Le Carpeau. It's a brasserie, but in the back there's a card game in which Bob likes to lose all of his money out a lot, it seems. Um, But they are giving him a ride there. And a few minutes later, as Bob leaves the car, we get a sense of why this relationship exists. Because obviously one of LeDrew's sidemen asks him and he says, well, I was unarmed and this guy had the drop on me and Bob basically knocked the guy's aim off so I couldn't be shot. But he says, I don't know if Bob did it because it was dishonorable to shoot somebody who didn't have a weapon or because he was trying to make sure that his crook buddy didn't wind up on a murder charge. So whatever the reason, he's happy not to be shot, and they've got a significant bond. And he gives some additional backstory about Bob and that moment. You know, he hit the, he says he hit the Rimbaud Bank 20 years ago and did time for it. So Bob is someone who has a criminal past. He's not just a gambler. He has a, a bigger criminal past. He's done time for it, and supposedly in the past 20 years, he has gone straight. Maybe, because uh, I think it's LeDrew says it calmed him down to do that time. Yeah, mellowed with age. He mellowed with age, right. He is both old and young. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we let Bob off at Le Carpo. He goes in to play some cards. There is a bar that we're going to spend a lot of time at as well, somewhere down the road from Le Carpo. It is overseen by this older woman named Yvonne. She's the owner. She's the barmaid. She's the person who's there the whole time. And she is serving a group of people that includes a younger man named Paolo, who his friends are in the process of telling him, you know, you act a little bit too much like Bob. You know, I think that they even go further. Maybe it was my translation, but it's not just that he acts like him. He's not accidentally doing it. He's trying to emulate Bob. Yes. And yep. uh, fun fact, uh, that bar, uh, it's called Pil Ufas, mm-hmm. uh, which means heads or tails. And it's a real bar and it's still open. That's awesome. Yeah, it doesn't look like it does in the movie. And there's a later shot where the camera goes from room to room and you see a really thin piece of wood dividing them, which makes me think that maybe that particular wall is built specifically for the movie. Mm. But uh, yeah. It does not look the same, unfortunately. To confess, I did do a little Google street maps on some of these places and saw the front of that bar. And I believe it is right next door to a Japanese restaurant currently. So if you need a little uh, some noodles and a good place to drink in Paris, there you go. So there's this conversation. Hey, Paolo, you're emulating Bob a lot. I don't know if that's a great thing for you. A few minutes later, Bob shows up. Of course, he's lost again. 200,000 this time. I'm assuming Frank's. Paolo takes Bob back to his apartment. Bob, once he is there, writes a note for what we presume is his housekeeper to just let me sleep. Don't come in and wake me up. By the way, um, I know you mentioned the Franks, but I actually did a little digging to find out because I was curious, like, what is the scale of the money in this movie? Uh, And basically, it's a little complicated because French francs later got converted to new French francs, which eventually got changed into euros. But apparently, you essentially divide the numbers they're giving you by 39.17. So Bob lost $5,000 in his evening card game. He's lost some money. He hasn't lost everything, but he's lost a chunk. Yeah, and a big chunk. Here's the second time. Bob's going home to sleep, wakes up a little later to a phone call manages to wake up in time, picks it up, but no one is there. Almost immediately, the doorbell rings. And (laughs) by, you know, he's going to the door to see who the hell this is at the door waking him up. There's a note left by his housekeeper, Celeste. Hey, Bob, laundry's clean, coffee's on the stove. And he opens the door to come face to face with a guy uh, he doesn't really seem to like that much. I think it's interesting you pick that up because this is one of the things which I think the movie doesn't pump up in the way that a more conventional movie might. 
basically he opens the door and Mark's first words aren't hello. It's I need money. And Bob goes in, goes to his money drawer, essentially right in front of this guy who doesn't seem to like. Yep. And it's all kind of done in a very, not detached, but no big deal kind of way. And it's only when you sort of stop and say, what kind of person just shows up and starts a conversation with I need money? And what kind of person would essentially show where his all his loot is for somebody who does that? And so there's a lot of kind of when you stop and think about it that you might miss if you don't have this primer that we're giving you for what happens in the movie. And the type of person who would do that is what we find out Mark is, which <laughs> is a fellow crook, a current crook if Bob is a former crook, because as Mark makes clear to Bob or Bob drags out of Mark within this conversation, Mark is a pimp. And the reason he needs that money is he needs to hide out. He's gotten too rough with a girlfriend and has beaten her up. And now he's on the run and he needs some money until this thing blows over. And the interesting thing to me was, okay, obviously Bob is comfortable hanging with cats who do crime. If he sort of knew Mark before this, I'm sure he knew that Mark wasn't the best guy in the world. He's gambling in, in back room halls and things like that. He's okay in that element. But this moment where he either finds out for the first time he's a pimp, which I don't believe, or finds out that he's still pimping, which I believe more, it rubs him the wrong way. And it rubs him the wrong way so much that he gets angry and essentially kicks Mark out of his apartment without the money. By the way, we haven't talked much about how this apartment looks. Melville, uh, this was, I believe, the first movie. He had his own movie studio where it was not gigantic, but it was two stages and he lived above it. And he paid a lot of attention to the design of his sets. And... So in this movie, I don't know if you notice this, the walls mm-hmm. are this strange kind of like framed wallpaper and mm-hmm. framed wallpaper kind of can have a framed picture on top of it. Or when he goes to the kitchen, there's an overhead shot, which is, it's almost surreal. It's checkerboard and monochromatic. Yes. And, and a so hell of a view of Montmartre, by the way. This guy's <laughs> losing money, but he's able to afford this apartment with a view that today would cost millions. I love it when later it's described as an artist's garret or something like that. Yes. It's kind of like, hmm. <laughs> Real estate has become tougher, I guess. It has. The reason I sort of linger too on the on the whole thing about, hey, he's a pimp, hey, he's not a pimp, is Bob's comfortable with this guy up until the point where he finds out what he did to this girl. That's what sparks Bob's anger, which is sort of my first way of connecting Bob to the gentleman thief trope is that that Bob has a code. As much as you might not like the people he hangs out with or what he does, he is abiding by a code. And that code includes not hurting the little people. Very true. As we will see, it's going to dictate a lot of his behavior further down the movie. It really is. And so he almost physically picks Mark up and gets him out of the the apartment and says, get out of here. I don't want you in here. I'm not giving you any money. I don't like pimps. Following the altercation with Mark, uh, Bob has breakfast, which really is just he's going to have some coffee because remember Celeste said, hey, there's coffee on the stove. I don't think I want the coffee. He just goes for the bottle of wine instead. It's France. It's Paris. But it's it's in that moment that his phone rings. It's Paolo again. Uh, they have a rendezvous planned. Hey, Bob, I'll see you there. So we're back at the we're back at the Heads or Tails bar. Bob and Roger, and so this is a, a character I think that we get introduced to in this scene. This is Bob's fellow compatriot. May have done crimes with him in the past. Basically, the same age as Bob guy named Roger. And so they are throwing dice. Of course, Bob is losing <laughs> as Bob always does. Um, here comes Mark again into this situation. And this time, Mark has the young girl, the French fry eating girl that we saw in the first scene on his arm. 
and Bob, not for the last time, Bob sort of kicks into almost a paternal mode here. Bob hates pimps and he can see what Mark might be up to and he shoes him away. Yeah, and tells the girl, by the way, you know what, hanging out with that guy, you could use a good spanking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was kind of like, is this repartee entirely chaste? And um, I actually wrote down one more joke and you'll get that spanking later. And she says, I dare you. I dare you to. It's, it's absolutely not Chase conversation. No. Yeah. To which he says, you've got some lip on you for your age. And she says, night classes. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. The dialogue in this scene in particular and, you know, throughout the movie, there's some very, very clever dialogue where you got to kind of read between the lines a little bit. And this is certainly one of those moments. Um, <laughs> she has dared him to spank her. He invites her to the table. And here is where we are introduced to her. Her name is Anne. And Bob, it seems, is not the only one interested in this interesting <laughs> night dweller named Anne. So is Paolo. Paolo is so all over her, it's embarrassing. Not only does he kind of push himself, but he even makes a champagne sound with a finger in his mouth. Um, <laughs> just, I, He's not even getting friend-zoned in most places, but this is Pigal, so. And they're in a restaurant, you know, they're, maybe Bob's going to order food or whatever. Paolo says, you know, you shouldn't be hungry. Uh, girls like you have sugar daddies. And she fires back at him, hey, I think I maybe just found one. So they want to know what's up, right, with this girl who's walked in with Mark. Bob asks why she's in Walmart. She gives him the backstory. Hey, I lost my job. My boss, she says, wasn't my masculine ideal. Of course, Paulo is there with the answer. You know, I am. Do you always sleep alone? And Anne's response to this is one of my favorite things in the film. Do you always sleep alone? And her response is almost. <laughs> I missed that one. Uh, Bob is concerned that she's going to be a streetwalker. He's seen her out late eating French fries in Pagal. Paolo tries to show Anne that he's on her side, explaining to Bob, oh, I know why she likes to be out there. You know, it's she's young and there's the music and the clubs and the nightlife. You know, that's why she's out here in Pagal. And I'm, I'm the same way, baby. And she asks Bob, uh, we're all here. What do we do now? Bob says, of course, sleep. Your place or mine, she asks, and Bob, uh, given that opportunity, instead reaches in his pocket and hands her hotel money. Gentlemen. So we've had an introductory scene here. We've we've met all of our major characters. We've met Bob. We've met Paolo. We've met Anne. We've met Mark. And we come back to Mark. Mark, this no good Nick who showed up having beaten a woman and asking for money so that he can get away from the police. Mark, who has showed up at the Heads or Tails bar with Anne, the sort of innocent at the beginning of this movie who we very quickly discover is maybe not all that innocent but shows up with her allowing bob to play father figure and we get mark a third time here mark is arriving at the police station obviously he's been summoned for questioning and he shows up and says eh, what do you want me for i'm straight you know i'm not doing anything of course the the cops aren't buying that they're roughing up mark they're giving him a hard time and they offer to let him get out of this situation this trouble that he's in but they're going to need a favor in return. Mark promises to look Drew that basically when something big comes up, I'll be your stool pigeon. And in fact, I think they mentioned in the car at the beginning, LeDrew's men says, oh, is Bob one of your informers? So LeDrew kind of has a whole network going on. And uh, it's interesting to see, compare his behavior with Bob with his behavior with Mark, because LeDrew is not a very intimidating guy. 
But you can tell in the scene, he likes sort of putting the screws to somebody like Mark. And Mark's got this like offhand scumminess that you kind of are glad that LeDrew is doing it. Casting here is great on Mark. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. He is just looking at him. You go, I don't like this guy. Yeah. And I, I didn't look to see what kind of career he had afterwards. Did you recognize LeDrew from any other movies? I didn't. I looked up, you, you mentioned Mark and Mark is played by an actor named Gerard Bure. He had, and I'm, I'm even looking right now while we're talking, he had a relatively active career, uh, kind of smaller roles up until Bob LaFlambeur, and then worked all the way through the 90s. I mean, I think he was in wow. He was in A View to a Kill, I think in 85, too. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but they saw that in France. So right, know, I exactly. can see how that happened. Yeah. Right. But, but Drew is actually, if you've seen 400 Blows, yes. he is the sourpuss of a teacher. For Antoine Donnell. Is that him? Um, that's him. Yeah. He's not the kind of endearing person that he is in this movie, if you've seen 400 Blows. No, definitely not. <laughs> he actually has some redeeming qualities in this film. Yeah. So he's, he's roughing up Mark. Hey, Mark, I'll let you go, but I, I'm going to need a really good tip from you. Mark promises to get him one. Yep, no problem. I'll get you one, you know, and, and then you can wipe my record clean or whatever it is you got to do. Bob at this time is back with Paolo and Roger. They are, I think, hanging out or gambling or something. In the course of doing what they're doing, Bob flips a coin that he keeps in his pocket uh, to decide who's going to buy the bottle of wine. And, you know, for the first time we see Bob win something. He wins the coin flip and it looks like maybe his luck is coming back. The coin also is magic and that it makes a harp noise when it flies through the air. It does. Yeah, that's right. Bob has this cool car, big American car, really. I looked to me, I don't know which exactly which one it was, but it looked to me like a Chevy or a big Ford, like, you know, there's fins on the back of it. So he's, yeah. he's got this, he's got this cool car. It's been broken. It's been at the mechanic. And so Bob is going to pick up his car from the mechanic and actually goes, you know, heading back through Pagal after he's picked up his car, finds Anne walking along and offers to give her a ride. And of course she says, sure. Anne is always up for somebody to do something for her. She's in the middle of something too. She says she's in the middle of a move. Right. But that's basically because she stiffed her landlord. He has these dumb rules that she has to pay her rent and she's not <laughs> yes. going to abide by those rules. Bob has some, you know, pretty choice life lessons and one of them was uh, people you owe money to always have ridiculous demands. So. <laughs> <laughs> Bob doesn't want to see her out on the street, right? This is, we knew this from Bob in the last scene. And so Bob says, okay, you can stay at my place, which of course we can sense that Bob is not necessarily being completely altruistic about offering the pretty young lady a place to stay. I don't know if this costume choice grabbed your eye as well, but Anne wears this white top, sleeveless white top, which I don't know the mores of France in the, the mid-50s, but she looks kind of loose, I guess you could say. Not to be judgmental about it, but she's not somebody who's going to tamp her physical charms down. And I think the other part of that, too, maybe, is is kind of what we hinted at earlier, which is she's not afraid to do that. Right. She's in a neighborhood where we've got all these, you know, leering sailors and probably people with weapons and, you know, most assuredly people who aren't, you know, angels. And yeah. she's, she's not afraid to do that. She's confident in that skin. It's really funny to me that the first time I watched this movie, I was kind of like, mm, well, I don't know about the female parts here. But she's not a role model, but she's really interesting mm -hmm. uh, in that she's young and she's kind of experiencing a dangerous side of life. And, well, we'll see what happens with it. But I would say the movie doesn't really judge her for that. No, I don't think so either. And I think it almost celebrates her to some degree that because of that experience, she's able to hold her own with these other people. I like Anne. And I could watch a whole Anne movie, I guess. She's also got that teenager thing where, like, nothing's going to touch me. You know, I, I can't be hurt. And so she's worth keeping an eye. You know what she's like to me? 
Aunt Amy feels like the quote unquote bad girl in like a beach blanket bingo sort of a movie. She's the person who's like, while the others are bobby soxing, she's the, hey, daddy, oh, let's go for a ride and you're whatever. That to me is what she sort of feels like. Like there should be a little scarf tied around her neck and a cigarette dangling out of one side of the mouth. But like you said, she has that air of sort of young and nothing's going to touch me. And I am fully confident in what I know, even if what I know is not correct. It's like she doesn't have a plan in life so much. She's just kind of going with it. In the course of taking her back to his apartment, Bob manages to get in that he really has this love of horses, which just at the time seemed, you know, sort of like a non sequitur. Hey, I have all this money and I like to spend it on horses. But it's a piece of Bob that we might get a little bit more of in in a while. I think he gives her this line, and I wonder if you have the translation that, that you had, that his job, quote, pays enough to end up in the soup kitchen. That's how he describes what he does for a living. And she tells him, well, you're not there yet. And his response is, one can never lose hope, which which I think is, is a wonderful self-deprecating line about his predicament and his knowledge of how tenuous his place in life is. And speaking of never losing hope, what does he have in his closet, Josh? Don't we all have in our closet a slot machine? Because Bob does. Bob has this put a coin in it, pull the one arm bandit sort of a slot machine, which it seems that he likes to do every time he enters and leaves the apartment. And she zeroes in on it. She says, are you addicted? And he says, what do you mean? Which talk about your lack of perspective. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he, of course he loses. He, lo- yeah. he, put, he puts the coin in, pulls the arm, and he loses again. So we have this pattern of Bob losing money, which is definitely important for this film. This is going to play really hard into it. We have one moment where he won, and that was with the coin. We're going to come back to that. But for the most part, Bob is slowly being drained of every penny he has, penny by penny, in the slot machine. Indeed. And so they've just landed at Bob's place. They've just gotten there. She's settled in, and they're back out again. They're going for a ride. Why not? Bob's got the cool car. So he takes her driving around Paris, shows her where he was born, which is this sort of little dilapidated cabin kind of on the outskirts of town. We learned that he basically skipped out of his home at the age of 14. He comes back in 10 years and winds up seeing this woman who's scrubbing the floors that nothing else had changed and realized that old woman scrubbing the floor was his mom. Bob had no father and uh, mom has had it rough. And Bob sees her and decides that uh, he leaves. In my translation, I don't think it's clear that they had any kind of reunion. I don't think they did, but he starts sending money to her and coming by to see her every now and again from afar until I believe it's five years later. She's not there anymore. She's died. My translation of him said, I sent her money every day until she stopped scrubbing, which to me read as a way of saying she died. Yeah, I I didn't get that he did it every day, but the end of scrubbing was that she was gone. Right. He really doesn't match the stereotype of an up from nothing thief in a lot of ways, because you think of like the up from nothing thief and they kind of become incredibly powerful and uh, live high on the hog or Mm -hmm. die in an awful way. But he's mellowed with age. He's kind of a a middle-aged guy with a gambling problem now. Yeah, he's not Scarface. (laughs) No. This scene and the scene that's going to follow this are the moments where we are really rounding Bob out as a character to sort of understand who he is and how he operates and how he got to be who he is. He doesn't feel, like you said, there's not a direct line from coming from nothing to start at the bottom and now we're at the top. He has sort of gotten to his level and stayed there, tenuously so. So we get his backstory as a kid and kind of that here with Anne in the car. In the next scene, we get even more about Bob from Paolo because Paolo is talking to somebody about Bob and really just about Bob's methods uh, or method when he was a thief in his 
former life. I like how the person who Paul is talking with says, yeah, you know, um, he was the first person to imitate the Americans. Or maybe Paul says to the other guy, but the other person says, oh no, the Americans copied Bob. You know, Bob was the guy who brought in the whole idea of fast cars to right. be a bank robber, which I think is a little bit uh, dubious. And it's also a little interesting um, when we talk about Melville himself. Mm-hmm. Melville was, as a person, deeply steeped in Americana. Very much so. Even, like we said, taking the film noir genre here and, and weaving it with French cinema to come up with the unique sauce that Bob Le Flambeau is. And so having a thief in this who is the person who the Americans are copying, that makes sense with Melville. Yeah. But I mean, for Melville, it's not just his taste in movies. It's his way of life. And so Bob is very American in the way that he does things. We get a little bit more about this bank robbery. He did it with Paolo's father. So there has there's this tie. That's kind of why I think Paolo and Bob are so close is because Bob was close with Paolo's father. They did this job together. They used loaded guns, which there's a big deal made of about that, about criminals didn't used to use loaded guns and this sort of changed things. And of course, this loaded gun robbery ended badly. Bob ended up in prison and was was there for a long time. And we assume as well that Paolo's father was in prison. It's kind of interesting to point out that we're 20, 25 minutes into the movie at this mm. point, and there's not an inciting incident. There's not an idea about this story is going to go here. This story is going to go there. It's very much a hangout kind of vibe. You talked early on about how this is a movie about atmosphere and character and building a world. And we're doing a lot of that up front yeah. here without any indication of how anything is going to play out or if we're just going to sit and live with these characters for, you know, 90 minutes or 120 minutes. It's nice. It's nice to have a movie that does that, I thought. It's different. It's, it's not different. It's not something that we're allowed to expect when we go to the movies now. You know, it's very much like let people know right up front, you know, what's going to happen and what they should be rooting for, hoping for. And, and this movie just kind of says, here it is. Let's swim in it for a while. So Paolo's done with this conversation. Uh, we've gotten the backstory on Bob. Paolo finds Bob and Anne at the club. Correct me here if I'm wrong. There are basically three major locations in this movie, and one of them is Le Carpo, which is where Bob always goes to gamble, and one of them is the Heads or Tails Bar, which is where everybody goes to talk and download information, and then there is the club. And the club, it's just a nightclub, right? It's where everybody likes to hang out when they're in this part of town. I believe the club is actually the one at the beginning with the marimbas. Ah, there we go. I think Roger manages it or does something there. Okay. I was, I was kind of wondering about our tie to that. Okay. So potentially Ro- Roger's involved with the club. Got it. I think you're right about it being the one with the xylophone player at the beginning. So this is where he finds, this is where Paolo finds Bob and where he finds Anne and uh, just kind of hanging out at the club. Bob is going to go over to Le Carpo again to go lose some more money, uh, says, hey, Paolo, can you see Anne home, make sure she gets home safely. Paulo says, but I thought, and Bob cuts him off and said, you should never think. (laughs) He also pronounces, I never sleep before 6 a.m. So it's like, it's totally okay to go back to my place. But he does take the opportunity before Paolo leaves to ask him about a heist that he's planning with Mark. I understand that you're doing something with Mark. I've seen you guys talking about something going on. Don't do anything with Mark. It's a bad idea. Parting words of wisdom. No one should do anything with Mark, but Paolo seems drawn to Mark in some way, the same way maybe that he's drawn to Bob to emulate Bob. And so there's a little, a little, almost a love triangle going on between these three in terms of crime. But while Bob gambles, you know, he's off to Le Carpeau. Paolo, on the way to taking Anne home, they make sure to stop off for a drink. And of course, where do you stop off for a drink in Pigal? You stop off at the nude cabaret. And uh, <laughs> that's that's where they go. I always think of Taxi Driver when I see this scene. And 
you know, Sybil Shepherd in that movie, you do not take her to the adult entertainment. And sure. Why not? Why not? Yeah, the Les Nudistes, this was that particular club. And I, I had to make sure, you know, it was in French. I thought maybe nudist stands for something else, not stands for nude cabaret. So this is where they go. They get their drink. And having had, they head to Bob's apartment where she promptly stands in front of the picture window with Momart in the background and undresses. And I, uh, I don't know if you noticed the sound effect right before the fade out on Paolo. I didn't. Paolo is in front of the slot machine and Paolo's getting lucky. Oh, ding, 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 ding. He wins. <laughs> Again, like so much in this movie is sort of muted, but you can hear all the coins falling in a way that they never have for Bob. Bob is off doing what Bob does. And the next morning, having lost whatever he's lost at Le Carpo, Bob decides he's going to go lose a bit more money and uh, wants to make a horse bet. And so before he goes to make his horse bet, he comes home to gather his things, grab extra money, whatever it is he comes home to do, and finds Paolo in bed with Anne, which you can tell doesn't sit well with him, but he's not saying anything. You know, I didn't feel that. No? I think Bob is happy to have them together. Really? Yeah. Maybe it's colored by stuff that happens later in the movie. Yeah. But, you know, Bob walks back to his apartment and there are these two naked people sleeping in his bed. And I think it's an inconvenience. But I got the impression that Bob, at one point, somebody says something like, oh, you're talking about the future Mrs. Paolo. I think this is part of Bob's being paternal. It's hard not to sort of fall under the spell of Anne because she's so attractive. But I think he knows that he's inappropriate for her and that Paolo would be a better match. And do you think that's why he asked Paolo to take her back? Mm hmm. Yeah, I do. I think he's steering them together. That's interesting. I had read it slightly differently. When you're explaining it, I think maybe you may have a better beat on it than I do. At the time, maybe it was the look on Bob's face. Maybe it was something else. But it seemed like a combination of, yeah, of course they belong together. I'm too old. He's the right age. She is who she is. But almost a wistfulness that, oh, to be a few years younger. I don't know. And maybe at this point, we should make sure people know the ages of these people. Sure, yeah. Roger Duchesne was 50 when this movie was being made. He's got almost a pompadour of white hair, whereas Isabel Corey was, she's 15 when Melville discovered her, and this movie was shot when she was 16. So it's not unreasonable for Bob to, and Paolo is like, 28 or something, which is still kind of gross. A 28 year old, like <laughs> now that we've seen. I don't think the they ever say, I don't think they ever say how old she's supposed to be in the movie, but it's definitely younger than the other two men. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I, even before I looked up her age, it was like, she seems like jailbait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, however, Bob's feeling about this situation. Bob tells the housekeeper who has just arrived, go away, come back tomorrow, just leave it alone. And so he leaves Paolo and Anne in bed together, takes his money and heads for the horse track. And at the horse track, got the numbers here. He says he's going to be betting all that he's got, which is 700,000 francs, which comes out to the equivalent of just under $18,000 American now. So Bob is sort of living fairly close to the edge and is willing to just like bet all he's got on a hot tip. And again, I come back to, you know, the thing that Ann said, are you addicted? And I think that obviously Bob is addicted to a level, right? Bob is doing things that are unhealthy for himself financially, gambling, and that's kind of how he spends his days. It almost feels to me like it's more than an addiction, though. It feels to me like there's something about gambling. It's just something innate in Bob. And I think it gives him an identity in a way, yeah. in his community. We go back to the title of the film, you know, Bob the Gambler. That is who he is. That is how people know him. And if he wasn't Bob the Gambler, who would he be? Well, actually, Bob Le Joueur would be Bob the Gambler. Flambeur, it, there's not really an English translation to it, but it's kind of high roller. 
Like he's not just a gambler. Mm. He's somebody who takes gigantic swings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which matches up perfectly with this drive out to the horse track. You know, as he's telling Roger, I'm taking it all and I'm, I'm betting it and I'm betting it on a horse named the Prince of Orange. And so they go, they bet the money. You see the horse race. And from what we can tell after the race, I couldn't tell in the moment, but what we can tell after the race that Bob has won some money off this sucker. It's really quick. They have a him and Roger at the betting window and there's, you know, sort of happy music and Bob is smiling. But uh, do we relish this moment of victory? Of course we don't. (laughs) Of course we don't. We take what we have won where we should walk away. And instead, how do we up the ante here? What do we do with this money that we've just won on Prince of Orange? Well, we should take a drive down the coast and let's go to Deauville and let's go to the Deauville Casino and bet there. Sad portrait of addiction here. Right. The guy hits it big and it's like, now I've got money I can really gamble. And at the casino, okay, Bob's going to turn his winnings into more winnings. While they're at the casino, Roger, who's kind of trailing behind Bob as he does his thing, runs into this former crook now turned legitimate, semi-legitimate croupier named Jean, who's going to come to play a part in this film later on. Maybe uh, Jean had a Parisian past, but I like the fact that Dovi is about two hours by car from Paris. And it's like, and he knows who Bob is. Bob's got a serious poochie thing going on in this movie where basically everybody loves him and talks about him when he's not on the frame. And Jean, besides being a Bob Stan and a friend of Roger, Jean is a guy who has information. Once a crook, always a crook. He's got this job through sort of back channel means. You know, they don't check this and they don't check that. I ended, I got a job as a croupier. I just don't ask too many questions. <laughs> um, but he lets slip or maybe not lets slip, but tells Roger in the course of this conversation, hey, you know, the safe here at the casino can hold an awful lot. On the Grand Prix day last year, it was holding 800 million francs. And that's a number that gets Roger's attention. And why not? Because that's about $20 million now. That would get my attention. This is where sort of the wheels of plot start to move in this movie, whereas we've sort of sat and worked with character and figured out character and marinated in who they are and where we are. At this point, this is where the first instances of where this movie is really going to go kind of kick into gear. Yeah, and we're 35 minutes into the movie. Bob's doing what Bob is doing at the casino. Roger's finding out all this this information that could come in handy. We cut back for just a minute back to Bob's apartment where Paolo is asking Anne to move in with him. He's, he moves quick, Paolo. <laughs> He's an impetuous sort. I love the way this little snippet of a scene ends where they're asking, well, do you regret this? And she says, no. And she kind of steps away and the camera pants. She's just wearing like this fairly modest bathrobe, but she steps away and the camera pans down to like her covered legs and you don't see anything, but you know the direction she's moving in. You know the type of person Anne is and you almost have an expectation much like if you were in the room and you were focused on this person of what's going to happen next. It's such an unusual camera move that it's very, while you don't see anything, it's really suggestive and something which you might just fly over if you're watching the movie saying, okay, what's going on here? What's going on? With that shot, this is the last moment that we're going to see Anne at Bob's place because Anne is going to make the move and is going to move out of Bob's place and is going to go with Paolo, which Bob will find out in a second, you know, but first he leaves the casino. Of course, he's leaving the casino without the money he showed up with. He is nearly broke. He has nothing left. I I believe his line is, I've messed up all my life. This is continuation, Bob. This is what you do. This is what makes you who you are. 
he's down to his last pennies. And so what do you do when you have your last pennies and you're Bob LaFlambeur? You go back to the carpo and you gamble them. <laughs> you go back to the carpo and you stand by a table of other people playing cards yes. and get really into it and <laughs> eavesdrop. So they're talking about their gambling. That's right. <laughs> so. And so this gives Roger an opportunity here while we're we're in this moment of you know being nearly broke. Roger tells Bob, I believe, about his conversation with Jean about the casino safe. Hey, did you know? And the casino safe is sort of this symbol because it's stuffed full of 800 million francs, this symbol of the house always wins. Bob, on the other hand- Which is something that Jean said, actually. That's what what Jean said. Jean says earlier that this place gives lessons that are expensive and the people never learn. That's right, because Bob is off- um, Wagering. Bob sort of takes this as a gift from heaven, right? This is the solution to his problem. His problem is he has no money. Here is a casino that is stuffed full of money and will be stuffed even more full of money on Grand Prix Day. And so this could be the way that he gets out of this mess. Just, I don't know if it's earlier this scene or in the previous scene, I've messed up my life. And then he gets this faraway look when he hears about this money. And it suddenly says, no more gambling until I pulled this off. I was born with an ace of diamonds in my hand. <laughs> and it's like, dude, turnabout, you know, 180 degree, just the possibility of a big score. Bob loves a possibility. What is it? There's a Billy Joel song off of the uh, the Innocent Man album called Easy Money with the line, talk me into losing just so long as I can win. That's a movie song, right? Yeah, it's from the one with Jackie Gleason. Uh, uh, Rodney Dangerfield. And the movie Ro- is called Easy yeah. Money. Easy Money. Of course it is. That's the name <laughs> of the song. Yes. And so that line reminds me of this moment or reminds me of Bob in general. But the problem with Bob and getting this money to solve his problem and to put into action whatever plan it is he has in his head is he can't do it alone. So he starts off by convincing the one person who also knows that this thing exists to come on board. He really needs Roger into this. And Roger at first is not sold. Takes a little convincing. Bob is able to do that. Just, you know, it kind of, I think, pokes at Roger's need for feeling relevant or Roger's need for adventure or whatever Roger's need is. Bob knows Roger and manages to talk him into it. You know, it's funny you mentioned this because Roger's a character who actually doesn't register with me a whole lot. Mm. And I should thank, the disc had a really great commentary by Nick Pinkerton with a lot of facts. And one of them is that apparently Roger had a man crush or more on Bob. And a lot of that was taken out of the, the final version. So I don't get a whole lot from Roger. But when I heard that, it's like, okay, so maybe that's partially why Roger kind of passively goes along with Bob all the time. That's interesting. That footage or those scenes, was that ever restored anywhere, do you know? I don't even know if they were shot, but apparently in the Mm. original script, uh, Roger has a line where he says something like, Paolo is the son that Bob and I would have had together if things were different or something like that. Okay. Well, for whatever reason, Roger agrees, Roger agrees. And that puts Bob in the position that he needs to be in in order to get the wheels moving on this plan, on this heist that he has in his head. And one of the things that Roger is going to help him with is they need funding. And Roger knows the guy that they can go to, that they can approach. He's got a great idea. They're going to try to put together essentially a team, backers and and frontline people, in order to make this thing happen. They're going to see if they can make that occur. And this is the first step towards doing that. Okay, you picked up something I didn't. Because for me, it seems like they go visit Mr. McKimmy. And he's like the primary source of income. Because they say to him, we need this amount of money. And he says, well, yeah, I can fork that. But what do I get back out of it? 
And so I thought that basically McKimmy is financing the whole thing. Correct. And I think it's in this scene and before they go to see him in person, it's in this scene that I think Roger tells Bob, they talk about the Scotsman. The Scotsman, we've used him before. We've, you know, had this relationship before. I think that may be the guy that we need to go to. I, I don't know if he says like, I can get us the meeting or whatever, but Roger's sort of the guy that brings the Scotsman into the conversation and Bob going, oh yeah, that's a great idea. So this is the setup for where we're going to go in the next part of this film. This whole thing kind of ends with a coda at the end with Bob, after having had his brilliant idea, coming back to his apartment to discover that Anne is now gone. She has gone with Paolo, whether he wanted that to happen or not, and goes to pull the arm of the slot machine, as he always does, in his closet and remembers the promise that he has made that he is not going to gamble again until this is all over. It's inspiring. It's inspiring. (laughs) And so with all of these pieces starting to come together with this interesting world of Bob and Anne and Paolo and Roger and whoever else may come into this, Jean, and this tempting $800 million in a safe at a casino, we're going to talk more about that when we come back. Hi, I'm Josh Dassel, producer and host of the Subgenre Podcast, and right now you're listening to my voice. But did you know that this same space is available for you to market your business, sell your product, or promote your favorite cause or organization to our audience of smart, pop culture-savvy listeners with extraordinary taste in what to listen to? Visit subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre to inquire about what we offer. Ad space is available on this and future episodes of Subgenre and The Pickup Shot, as well as our entire back catalog of episodes. We'd love to do business with you. That's subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre. Keep listening, and maybe next time we'll hear your new ad right here. You are listening to Subgenre. I am here with Steve Baumgartner, and we are talking about the Jean-Pierre Melville film, Bob Le Flambeur. How are you doing so far, Steve? I'm doing well. This is not the easiest movie for me to talk about, but I hope we're conveying a sense of like how this movie feels as well as what happens. I hope so, too, because this is a movie that I think is hard to put into words because it is so atmospheric and because there's so much kind of going on. I hope we are doing it justice because... It is a very interesting film. I mean, Melville haunts you if you're not doing your duty. <laughs> right. So when we last left off with Roger and Bob, they were talking about this 800 million that was sitting, going to be sitting in a safe on Grand Prix Day at the Dovi Casino to put together a plan that's going to work where they can go take this money to solve all the problems, they need a backer. And we hinted at this before the break. They're going to try a Scotsman uh, named McKimmy. Um, He's retired, they say. He's out of the business, but, you know, maybe he's got a few bucks he'd love to throw towards this. Bob has drawn up a sketch of kind of here's generally how I think it can go, but they're going to need a more exacting plan. And part of that plan needs to include Paolo. They need Paolo. So they head back to the Carpo, of course, and Bob finds Paolo, unfortunately, sitting in a booth and talking to Mark. Don't talk to Mark. 
No. And Bob, of course, I don't think he literally grabs him by the collar, but basically grabs him by the collar and, and says to Mark, look, you keep whatever you're doing. I don't care, but keep Paolo out of it. Leave him alone and takes Paolo. And again, not by the collar, but sort of verbally by the collar, takes him, puts him in a car and gets him out of that situation. And they, he said, where are we going? We're going to drive to the seashore. You know, one thing about this movie is that I don't feel it has a lot of sympathy for Anne. It doesn't love her in a way. It's interested in her. But it has a lot of love, I think, for Paolo, who is just the biggest dumb. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's 27, 28, living in the underworld and just makes one stupid decision after another. He does. (laughs) Poor Paolo. You just want to pat him on the head. Poor Paolo. Bob gets him out of there as best as he can, shoves him in the car. Off to the shore they go. Going to the shore means going to the casino, right? So they're driving out to where this casino is. They are in what was a really nice shot. And again, we, we sort of came back to this movie and this director are kind of you know precursors to the French New Wave. We get this shot that's a moving shot, handheld shot in Bob's car, driving round and round and round the casino from one side to the other as they're mapping the outside of this casino on a piece of paper. I love that shot. I love that scene. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I can imagine people today seeing that shot and saying like, okay, we get it. They're driving around. But think of all the movies from the 50s you've seen where people are in a car and they have the worst rear projection going on. So that's why this is sort of a thunderbolt for people when they're like, not only are they seeing places they might not normally see in a movie, but it's got an immediacy and a realism and an authenticity that uh, I think is hugely well. It's really the first time that I can recall in the film where we amp the camera work up to that level of immediacy. So it feels very much because it's handheld, because we're facing forward, because, you know, it feels like we're in the moment. And I think that that brings this extra feeling of involving the audience in what's going on. And and I don't know, just I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. And so that's what they're doing is they're driving around and around this casino. They're taking notes on what the outside layout of this thing is. Following the car ride, they stop into a, it's a cafe or a restaurant or something. And there they are meeting up with their contact inside the casino, Jean, the croupier. And Jean is there with his wife, who, (laughs) how would you describe his wife? I think their opening dialogue, uh, the exchange they have, kind of tells you all you need to know about their relationship. She says something like third rate hotels, cheap restaurants. And he says, I bought you a Renault. And she says, yeah, but I wanted a Peugeot 403. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of Suzanne. She's, um, and him for that. It's. I guess they compliment each other in that way, but it's not a relationship I would want to be a part Suzanne of. Suzanne is never satisfied. Suzanne has a very high bar for what she considers her lowest bar. <laughs> when Roger and Bob come in, it's like they're clearly not expecting Suzanne to be there. And she's rightfully pissed that they're like, uh, we're in charge of security and go away, lady. We've got man uh-huh. So Suzanne's hard edge, it's like, in a way, I'm sure it was there before this insult, but what we see of her, I really understand this person. You know, you got to figure, like you said, she's married to a criminal. She has learned how to maintain control in certain Mm -hmm. situations where maybe, you know, she isn't welcome or where there are things happening that she can't control. She has developed a personality that demands control. Although I think with Jean, it's probably not the hardest to control. No, no, (laughs) no, it is not. 
Um, the reason they're here, the reason they're meeting with John, the reason they're meeting uh, uh, with the wife is they're telling John that they need his help, obviously, that he needs to get them some casino details because he's the inside man. Well, John doesn't know that he wants to be the inside man, right? If You know, if I help you, I'm going to lose my job. I don't want to lose my job. Have you seen my wife? She needs the money. And they tell him, if you help us, don't worry, we're going to make it worth your while. We're going to give you 500000 and if you don't help us, yeah, right. If you don't shame help us, if your employers found out that you used to be a pimp who did time. Wouldn't that be a shame? Which of these two options sounds better to you? <laughs> and of course, also sort of like, I don't know if you had this line in your version, but when they ask for the floor plan of the casino, he says, what will you do with a floor plan? And they say, frame, frame it. it. Yeah. <laughs> so he agrees, of course, there's money there to be made. He's got the information. It's not such a heavy lift for him to do. So he's going to make the money. He's going to get the 500K. He agrees. They need money to pay Sean. They need money to do a lot of things. And so Bob and Roger finally get this meeting with McKimmy, the Scot, who, again, we have a French actor playing a Scotsman. Uh, we're not going to harp on the accent, but come on, guys, try a little harder. <laughs> They tell him the plan. They tell him how much they need, which they have determined is 8 million francs. And at the end of the day, they say he'll get back 10 million. Well, the hell with that, says McKimmy. I don't want 10 million. I want half. Je ne suis pas de philanthropist. There you go. There not you go. a philanthropist. I'm not a philanthropist. And essentially, he puts them in the same position that they put Jean. Take it or leave it. You're going to make money or you're not going to make money. It's my terms, not your terms. And so they are put in this position of having to swallow that and accept it. Okay. We accept. You get half the take if you'll put down the money that we need to do this because we're going to need to go hire some people, which they immediately go do. They go start essentially hiring muscle, including a, a couple of guys named Luigi and Pablo, and making sure to tell them in this robbery there will be no shooting, which harkens back this, to that story from before about uh, you know guns and criminals and yeah. old styles and all that. Yeah, There's Luigi, there's Pablo, and I think there's a guy before that who's got a mustache. Yes who basically is another stupid character that the movie takes time out repeatedly to say, this guy is a dim bulb, which again, first viewing just kind of flew by me. And then you watch it again. And it's like, oh, there he is again. And they're insulting him here. And he's insulting there. And he's showing his idiocy there. So I don't know if that's uh, what that guy's name is. I never, he's, picked, he's I never a, picked it up. We'll just call him dim bulb. How about that? I call him the dopey recruit. So they've asked Sean to give them casino plans. John delivers on his casino plans. You know, he wants his money. He turns over the casino plans. He turns over details of the safe that were previously unknown to Roger. It uh, is it is hard to get into. This is after he got caught in the bathroom in the middle of the night holding up the casino plans. Yes. And Suzanne walks in and she's like, what's that? He says, nothing. You know, I, I'm just reading a blueprint in the bathroom in the middle of the night. Why are you so jumpy? Get off my back, Suzanne. Can't so. a guy be in the bathroom reading reading some casino <laughs> blueprints without everybody coming in and making a deal of it? Come on. John's yeah. bathroom is a lot easier to get into than this safe. Unlike his bathroom door, the safe has, we are told, four locks, four combinations. And if that wasn't enough, it has a hydraulic elevator that drops it down into the floor. So this is going to be a big job and they're going to need some additional help. And so they offer Jean another 500,000 if he can, you know, just stall the elevator on the morning of the robbery. Can you do that? Can you just make it so the elevator doesn't work? So yeah. we, we get a little bit of extra time to take care of these four locks and four combinations and hydraulic elevator. It'd be great if that safe didn't It'd sink be around. wonderful if that didn't happen. And so Jean says 500 more. I agree. 
he, and what does he do with that extra money? If you had Suzanne waiting at home, who is never pleased with what you bring, who never feels like you have enough money, and all of a sudden you essentially have, what, 500 plus 500, you've got that much money burning a hole in your pocket, you stop to get her something at the jewelry store, of course. You're in Paris. Why, why not? not? And so he buys her this lovely bracelet. He brings it home. He waits till she's out of the room and kind of, you know, puts it on her pillow and arranges it. It's a special thing. And out she comes and he presents it for her birthday. Happy birthday, baby. I love the fact that she's got two uh, contradictory responses at the same time. She puts it on. You can tell she really likes it, but she's like, where the hell did you get the money for this? And uh, I don't think he tells her yet. I think you can tell that she knows that this is not legitimate money because she knows Jean. But in Suzanne's head, the wheels are already turned. And so, okay, Jean's tried to do something nice. Jean has gotten not the response he was hoping for and a little bit of prodding by Suzanne. We leave them for a while to fight it out and instead go back to the nightclub where Anne, instead of just being there, Anne is now working as a flower girl. And Anne will become, as we'll see in the following scenes, Anne is very upwardly mobile at this, at, at this club. Like, she she goes through more jobs than I did in my teens, man. She is on it. Uh, but she's a, she's a flower girl. Somebody says about her, she knows what she wants, but subtle. Which I think is pretty funny because there's a fairly hard cut to the next scene in which she's nude in bed. Paolo asks her, because Paolo's there, should I wait for you? No, I'll be late. And then, like I said, next scene we cut to, they're in bed together. And Paolo takes the leap and tells her he loves her. And her response is basically, well, so what? You know, I, I want something big. I, it's something like moon size. How can I prove I, I love you? You can get me the moon. And Paolo, uh, brain trust that he is, says, well, you know what? I've got this big heist lined up, the Dovio Casino, and it's going to be major. And she says, how much are you going to get? And by the way, I'm too tired. I thought of all that money and suddenly she is enough to make her cut off any amorous plans for the evening. Poor dumb Paolo, right? This is the moment where what was the secret plan among thieves sort of gets leaked public, you know, in the minorest of ways, which is going to have major effects down the line, unbeknownst to Bob and to Roger, because they are busy getting ready for this thing. And Roger is practicing cracking a safe. He's got four locks and four combinations and whatever to go to. So we're having this scene of preparation where he is practicing and practicing and figuring out a way to get into the safe. Did you see what McKimmy's got on the woodwork of the back of his house there? He's got a whole bunch of crests, I guess, to make him look really classy and money. But Mm. I swear to God, they look like something that you make in fourth grade and put on the board (laughs) and line up with construction paper. Uh, For all his attention to detail, I think Melville dropped the ball on that. Well, you know, when you spend all the money on, you know, fancy cars to be in the movie and, you know, (laughs) sets that uh, look out on Walmart, you know, that kind of a thing, you you may not have enough money for Scottish crest. You didn't have enough money for language training for the the Scottish accent or the American accent. So I get it. (laughs) Come on, baby. Come on, baby. You know, they got a crew now. And so Bob has to let everybody know and let us as the audience know as part of this how this mission is going to go down. And this is kind of a fun sequence because, you know, yeah. with, with any heist movie, you've got scenes of preparation. You've got scenes of planning. And that's kind of a lot of times the fun in games. Besides the heist itself, that's one of the most fun parts of the film. And this is no exception for me. He's kind of briefing them on what this mission's going to be. Hey, guys, it's going to be dangerous. Hey, guys, on paper, here is what it looks like and how we're going to do it. But instead of just keeping it on paper, I'm going to show you what this is going to look like. And so we cut to this field, like literal field, where Bob has marked off with tape or something else or spray paint or something, has marked off the casino. They're like lime lines, I think, like when you play in Little League and they have, well, instead of, 
a baseball diamond. It's of actual size of the casino. And he's walking him. You're going to go here and you're going to go here. And they see these things that I've drawn that look like steps. These are steps. And you're going to go. I'm going to walk down these steps. I'm going to do this. And so you get this kind of aerial shot of the field as they are doing a walkthrough of what everybody is expected to do on the day of the job. And oh, by the way, when you're going to do all of that stuff, you have a grand total of six minutes. That's the ticking clock that we're given is they're going to have six minutes to pull this job. In my you know, affection for Dopey Guy, I want to say that he gets treated like a rag in the indoor scene with the uh, chart. Basically, this guy says, why are you standing up? You want a medal, essentially? <laughs> Later, he says outdoors, I never went to school or something like that and asks about like whether the safe is reinforced with metal. And Bob says, no. Wood. Dope. <laughs> <laughs> no. And again, the way this shot is, you, you really kind of be paying attention to faces and intonation, which unfortunately the subtitles can distract from. That's dopey guy. It's a thankless part, but I'm glad he's got it. This scene in the field, which is cool enough, right? The aerial shot and the, the lime lines and the whole thing is paired with what I think is a really, really nice decision by Melville, which is that we get not just a description of what's going to happen, we get an actual, almost like a, a fantasy sequence of what the actual heist is supposed to look like, right? So we see the front of the casino. We see the cars pull up at the moments where they're supposed to. We have the voiceover telling us, you know, at minute 42, we're going to do this. And at minute 47, we're going to do this. And we see all the guys, cars pull up in front of the casino. Everybody, Paolo and the rest of them, jump out of the car. They go into the casino and kind of spread out into the places that they're supposed to go, going up this staircase and down that staircase and guarding this door. Uh, you know, they're doing this run through. Even in the fantasy sequence, the casino is empty. So you're yeah. seeing these guys walk through an empty casino and, and do their thing. It's kind of a cool sequence. Yeah, very much so. The narrator comes in basically at this point. We're an hour into the movie and suddenly say, like, oh, that's right. There's a narrator. It's a Melville. And this all happens. And Rififi was really huge because there's about 30 minutes of that movie with no dialogue and a lot of quiet. And this is almost like a compact version of that. And it, it sort of culminates in a shot I really like with Bob kind of at the top of the stairs, right side of the screen, mm -hmm. foregrounded with people behind him. And he's sort of magisterial, like I have conquered, like this is my moment. This is my moment of validation. And we want to remember this fantasy sequence, even the angles of the shots of this fantasy sequence, because we're going to get to compare this fantasy sequence with reality at some point later down the line. The other reason I like that this is here is it gives us as an audience the baseline of what this is supposed to feel like, how it's supposed to operate, but even what it's supposed to look like in terms of the angles of the cameras. Okay, we're running through. Here's what everything is supposed to be. Here is how it's supposed to go. Roger is still practicing the safe and, you know, just kind of like you'd see in any other movie. He's got his ear against it or he's got the stethoscope against it. He decides he's going to go a little more high tech and figure out a better way to do this. And so basically what he's doing is he's hooking up an oscilloscope and a speaker to the safe so that he can hear when the tumblers go where they need to go and using this method, we get the sense that he's figured out the secret and he's going to be able to pull this thing off. He could pull it off. He had as much time in the world, but he doesn't have as much time in the world. And at about like, I think the four minute 20 mark, Bob says, come on, you know, we're supposed to be out of here in two. To which he says, locks are like pretty girls. You have to practice on them. So we have a plan. We have a crew. We as the audience have an understanding of how, of what, it, if it goes right, what it's supposed to look like. And before the whole thing can be put into any sort of actual motion, 
back at the bar, remember the bar, the Heads and Tails bar? Remember Yvonne, the owner of the bar, who is an old friend, it seems, of Bob and everybody else? She basically pulls Bob aside for a quick heart-to-heart because she's gotten wind of what's going on. You know, everybody kind of in that world, I I imagine, sort of knows what's kind of happening and says, hey, Bob, are you sure you want to do this again? And more than that, she says, don't do it. And says, you know, Bob, because again, everybody loves Bob. She says, you loaned me money for this bar to help me get on its feet. Let me help you. And she's very level-headed and she's also age appropriate, or at least closer uh, than Hannah's for Bob. But does the man listen? No, of course he doesn't. No, of course not. And she, you know, like you said, she offers him money. Like you help me, let me help you. She also puts a finer point on it and says, I don't think you have the heart for prison again. You did prison once. You were a younger guy. You're not a younger guy anymore. It still doesn't register with him or his pride is in the way or whatever it is. Uh, You know, he's just convinced he can win. I really like Yvonne. And I think that that actress, she doesn't have a lot to do, but it seems like she's so on top of the character and her history that she just fits in perfectly. And it's a, an actress named Simone, I'm going to mispronounce her last name, but Simone Paris, Simone Paris, who had a career, I think, stretching all the way into the early 80s uh, in a lot of different movies. So I agree. I like the way that she plays that character. Let's have a drink for Yvonne. I get the uh, <laughs> clinky ice. Yeah. So Yvonne's tried to talk him out of it. He's not going to be talked out of it. We're back at the club again, Xylophone Club. Anne, who has gone from just being there to being a flower girl, is now a hostess. And, uh, you know, in how, however many days this has been, she's she's moving up the ladder. Bob, finding her there as the hostess, hey, you're doing well for yourself, kind of scolds her about how she's treating Paolo. You're not being nice to this guy who I know really likes you, you know, just kind of talks to her about that and says she feels pity for him, but asks Bob if she can ever sleep at his place with, to me, what seemed like a wink wink. Maybe it's just me. I thought he was implying that because the guys she's at the table with are creeps. Yeah, you know, let's they, set that up. Hostess, right? Quote unquote. She's entertainment for the guests that are there, right? She's. Yeah, she's not checking in people at, at a podium and yes. saying, go to this table. She's sitting down and she's company for much older. I, I think the guy even has a German accent, which I don't think would be necessarily a positive thing in Melville's right. world at this right. point. So I thought Bob was sort of implying that she's kind of sleeping her way to the top. Mm -hmm. And again, I think he recognizes she's attractive, but I think Bob realizes that his relationship with her is he's more of a guardian angel. Are you sure? Because his line in that she asked Bob, can I ever sleep at your place? And his response is not, no, we're not age appropriate or you need to be with Paolo. He just says, not if Paolo still likes you. Which does imply that there is some interest there maybe on Bob's part in her, but he's not going to throw Paolo under the bus to do it. It'd be pretty hard to outright reject Anne, I think. Anne is doing what she's doing. You know, Paolo is a little bit on the outs. Bob is planning for his thing. Where's Mark? Mark shows up at the club a little later on, and he is there. I don't know if he showed up specifically to meet Anne, but definitely meets her there and says, hey, let's go for a drink. Of course, she says, yeah, why not? You know, she's Anne. She'll go for a drink with anybody. It's fine. I get all those calories and someone's going to buy them for me. (laughs) And of course, where do they end up? They end up back at Mark's apartment and they end up in bed together. You know, now that they're getting a more intimate connection, he says, you should hook for me. You'd make a fortune. He's a salesman. (laughs) Always be closing. (laughs) (laughs) He's a scum. He is a scum. And somewhere in this conversation and this interlude, uh, this interlude between them and maybe a little tipsy from the drinks that they've been having. And spills the beans about the heist. She's sort of comparing, I think, uh, Mark to Paolo and and saying, you know, you have what you have, Mark, but Paolo has. 
she says, Apollo wouldn't make me work. And he's like, well, Apollo, he can't keep you. He doesn't even have a car. And Anne's like, well, you know, he's got a hundred million francs. Is he jealous of that? And then it's like, he doesn't have a hundred million francs. No, well, he's getting it from a casino knockoff. Oops. And Mark's like, huh? And of course, you know, it may take a minute, but Anne realizes what she has done, realizes that that wasn't the thing to say or the person to say it to. Yeah, the next morning, like Mark's like, so tell me more about this casino heist. And the scene closes with a close up of Anne's face. And you can just see, I fucked up yep, all over. 100%. And so, to her credit, she decides that what she needs to do is go and confess what she's done. She doesn't want him dicked over by this guy or cut out or hurt or whatever. So, she goes to see Bob and confesses to Bob at the bar what she's done. Hey, you know, I may have told Mark when we were in bed together about your big job. What does it say in your version? Like her line in mine is, I want to prove I'm a good girl. I didn't note that line, but that's an interesting line if that's what she says. Again, it's funny because the previous scene where there's no words and you can sort of see that she's, the way I read it is that she's like, oh, what did I say last night? And this scene though, she says, I want to prove I'm a good girl. It's not, the way she says it, I didn't know how to take it at the first Mm -hmm. time. I didn't know if she was trying to sort of avoid taking responsibility for when the shit goes down or if she genuinely wants to be restored in Bob's eyes before she goes down. Can't it be both? It's interesting either way. I think if if there's something about her that says, I know how people see me, I know how Bob sees me, I want to sort of up my reputation or I want to redeem myself somehow with him, that's interesting. If she's coming at it the other way, also says a lot about her character. So yeah, I don't know. That's a good line. And unfortunately, we now see Bob, I would say, just uh, least likable because she confesses and said, you know, Paolo told me this, but I, I didn't believe it. And then came back and Bob's way of dealing with this is to smack her and throw her out of the camera. He does kind of to her, maybe not to the same level, but he does to her what he got so angry at Mark for doing to his girl early on. Yeah, And he does it because of something that she has done with Mark. So there's interesting symmetry there. And it's also a little weird because even though he has this outburst, which I don't think it's necessarily, it's controlled in the way like, well, this is the natural response. It's not like he is enraged. Um, It's almost like this is the consequence because in a minute he goes to Yvonne and he says, give this key to the girl. So he still cares about her welfare, even though he's just whacked her across the face, but not a good look, Bob. Mark is out there with information that Mark should not have. And so Roger goes looking for Mark, uh, goes to try to find him at the Carpo, which is maybe the last place that he was seen, but finds out that the cops have already picked him up. And so runs back out to the car. I think Bob's driving and they head where they need to head. But what's happening with Mark is at the station, he tries to deliver on this promise he has made to the inspector early on. Remember, I was going to bring you a hot tip. I've got this hot tip. I can't prove it yet, but I'm going to check it out and I'm going to make sure that you have it. And that's going to be my free pass to get out of trouble. And meanwhile, in Dovi. Remember Suzanne? Remember, remember the lady who wants a different car than the one she has and likes to break into bathrooms when people are reading stuff? She is really pushing Jean. Now that she's found out what Jean has been asked for and that there's been this additional ask of him to stop the elevator on the day of the heist, she is saying, they want you to do that? Well, that's worth a lot more. 500000 That's worth a lot more than what you're asking. Don't get 500000 Ask for five to $10 million. $5 million. No, $10 million. And not only that... We're going to go to Paris right now to settle this. I'm going to go see Bob myself. She got exactly what she wanted. She still talks to him like a little boy who needs to be chastised. And she 
Which he does. Right, correct. (laughs) And she is going to be a handful. If she wasn't already, she's going to be a handful from this point forward. And so Jean and his wife are now on sort of their collision course, right? They're going to Paris to see Bob. They've got information. They're going to ask for more money, demand more money, or else. And so they're heading the direction that they are going to head. Back at the bar... You've got Paolo finally coming, you know, back around, seeing Bob and Roger and both of them being in really unwelcoming moods to him. He seems, you know, he Paolo's being Paolo. He's dippy and not picking up uh, everything that's going down, but they make it very clear very soon. The job is off because somebody talked to a woman. Oh, and by the way, we know that somebody was you. He's like, well, how'd that happen? And they said, well, you know, you gave it to her as pillow talk. She gave it to somebody else's pillow talk. And if you'll notice, Paulo is more upset that she's cheating on him than he has screwed over his idol's $20 million heist. Yes. Which, Paulo, you frustrate me. <laughs> Paulo needs love. He needs love and love is abandoning him. <laughs> yeah, I know he had a really deep relationship with Anne and all, but still. And I think the thing that hurts Paulo even more is who it's with. He told Anne in bed and Anne told somebody else in bed, but the person that Anne told in bed is Mark. And Mark is, we haven't really said it outright, but Mark is kind of this other person that maybe he kind of looks up to. We said he's had this little job. Maybe he's planning with Mark, that that Paolo and Mark are planning together. We've seen him together a couple of times. There's some sort of relationship between the two of them. And Hmm. it almost feels like the fact that it's Mark makes it worse. I hadn't thought of that, but you're probably right. Paolo's been cheated on. Poor Paolo. But we got to, we got (laughs) to. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, we got to scoop Paolo out of the way because here comes Jean and Suzanne showing up at the bar to see Roger and Bob. Thankfully for Roger and Bob, they have just left. And Yvonne gets to tell Jean to get lost and go look elsewhere. While they are looking for Bob and Roger, Paolo is now walking the streets searching for Mark. So we've got a two-headed hunt going on out in the streets. And you can tell that Paolo is not in a good place. I actually love these scenes they shot on the streets and in the park earlier because I sort of like when you see a movie and they're stealing shots. And if you look at the background extras, there's always somebody who's kind of looking at the camera. Mm -hmm. You can find that here. The reality of the movie gets kind of broken, but in a way you get this reality of the making of the movie. You're probably talking about maybe the couple or two that are sitting outside the cafe or the bar or whatever when they go in, you, you know, staring directly at the camera. But in that exact same shot, in that moving shot, as Paolo goes in, you get to see the entire camera crew in the mirror behind the bar. Uh, It's later with the truth. Paolo is wandering the streets. Paolo is not in a good place. He's looking for Mark. And he finds Mark at a restaurant, at a cafe, as Mark is in a phone booth, the equivalent of a phone booth, sticking his head inside to call the police to give them his tip. Hey, I've got the hot tip. I can let you know what it is now. I've confirmed it. And before uh, Mark can turn over the information to LeDrew, what does Paolo do? Paolo goes for the guns. Yeah, Paolo. (laughs) He shoots Mark, kills him on the spot right there on the phone, sort of gangster style, and then doesn't really run, but uh, fast walks his way in the opposite direction and hightails it out of there. I believe it's Suzanne and Jean. Are they sitting in a car when that happens and kind of see what goes on? Is that how that goes down? I didn't think that they saw what went down. I think that they just were unable to find Bob or Roger. Mm. So Suzanne says, you know what? We've got to stop the crooks. She almost like frames it like this is our civic duty to do. Uh, But she also says, but uh, don't do the part that they're paying you for with the sinking safe. And uh, don't let them know that we're screwing them over. We want the money. Screw them over, but make sure you get paid in the meantime. 
<laughs> they call LeDrew. They call to let him know what's going on, but LeDrew is not in. And so they are told to call back in an hour, which they plan to do. Where is LeDrew? I was going to ask you. Yeah. Why he's at a Chinese restaurant eating with his good friend Bob. Which I believe the Chinese restaurant where they shot this scene, or at least the exterior of it, is the site of that Japanese restaurant that's next to the Heads or Tails bar in Paris currently. Oh, wow. I'm going to Google map that myself. They're having dinner. LeDrew tells Bob, look, Bob, I'm not dumb. I know that you're working again, and I want to get you off of this path if I can. We all know you're broke. You're Bob LaFlambeur. You never have any money, but you've been good for like 20 years. Don't mess this up. And I think Bob sort of uses that same line back to him and says, look, I've been good for 20 years. Don't worry about me. As they are heading out, LeDrew tells Bob that, you know, he's, he's heading off in his direction. Bob's heading off in his. LeDrew tells Bob he's got to go check on the murder of a guy named Mark. He says, well, I got to get back to work. I got a murder. And Bob's like, oh, anybody I know? <laughs> yeah, you know this guy named Mark? Because <laughs> if I'm correct, Bob doesn't know that Mark is dead at this point. No. But he just kind of knows enough people in the neighborhood. And so he's like, oh, somebody died? Who? <laughs> you know, like, did you hear that the person across the hall won the lottery? You know? The last bit in kind of this sequence is we are back at the club. Anne has gone from being a patron to a flower girl to a hostess and now apparently is a dancer, fully choreographed at this club on stage. Yvonne has left Bob's key for her, uh, we established, and so she has this key to Bob's apartment now. The way that Anne looks at the key when her coworker gives it to her at, at the door, I mean, it's weird because like the coworker says, did you hear about Mark? And Anne's like, yeah. <laughs> it's, she, she certainly doesn't show a lot of feeling either way about it. And then the woman gives Anne the key. And again, it's one of those final shots before the scene ends. And the way Anne looks at the key, it has import for her. Let's put it that way. Yes. And I think it's up to us to kind of try to figure out exactly what that import is to Anne. Yeah. And I wasn't sure about that. I don't think she's expecting the key. No. But she seems to clearly have an understanding of what the key is. And I wonder if she's foreseeing what might come to pass. Yeah. And I wonder if she's kind of okay with it the way that she's okay with Mark dying. Mm. I find her really hard to read here, which is kind of interesting. While she is staring uh, incoherently at the key at the club in her dancer outfit, over at the police station, LeDrew finally gets his phone call from Suzanne and from Jean about the casino job. And they give him the details, and it rings true to LeDrew from everything he knows, uh, all the, the rumors that he's heard. And so now he knows that it's real. He knows he has to go get Bob. And this sets LeDrew on his collision course, such as it is with Bob and the rest of the crew. Bob, in the meantime, is prepping for his big score. And how do you prep for a big score in a casino if you are a gentleman thief, even if you are a gentleman thief in a bad part of town with not much money? You find a tuxedo. And he rocks it. He looks great in that thing. His the white slicked back hair and the, you know, the, the dark tuxedo and everything. If anybody was going to walk into a high-class French casino and pull a job, this is the guy you want to do it. He chooses to not take a gun. He has the option of taking a gun and leaves it behind. You have Bob in his nice tux, gunless, ready for this job. He takes a step. You know, you've got this scene that's sort of the darkly lit foreground and the brightly lit background outside of the door of his apartment. Bob takes one, what looks like one last look around at this world that he's been in, in his apartment. You know, you don't know what he's thinking, but potentially part of what he's thinking is I may not see this again. Um, mm -hmm. Or I may come back and this is, I'll never have to see this again. I'll be rich beyond my wildest dreams. But he takes takes his one last look around, and here comes Melville's voice again to lead us out of this section and gives us the line, now Bob will play his last hand 
and destiny will be fulfilled. Which is just so ominous. It's way ominous. Yeah. yeah. And Bob's destiny, one way or the other, will be fulfilled when we come back. When you're done listening to this episode, why not pick up a great book? Ask your bookseller about Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. It's what Publishers Weekly calls an offbeat and informative outing into the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Get the scoop on the murder, mayhem, and mystery behind stories like the thefts. Yes, I said thefts of the Mona Lisa. How the CIA impacted artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock. Andy Warhol's really odd time capsule collection. And the possible murder of Vincent Van Gogh. You'll find all of this and more in Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History from Penguin Books, written by Art Curious podcast host Jennifer Dassel. Visit artcuriousbook.com to find your copy now. That's artcuriousbook.com. Hey, you're back listening to Subgenre. We are talking about the French film from 1956, Bob Le Flambeur. Let's take a moment to geek out. <laughs> awesome. I think today, because in previous episodes this season, we've had some conversations about our favorite heist films, our favorite gentleman thief movies, um, our favorite movies by certain actors. I want to broaden that out a little bit, get outside the heist, although heist can be included in it, and really just talk to you, Steve, about your favorite crime films in general. But I think I want to tee it up with, what do you think makes a really good crime film? Oh, I wasn't prepared for this, Josh. <laughs> That's good. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to stump you, Steve. In a way, it's hard because, like you say, crime films are such an expansive genre that you can have certain things for one movie that work great and an entirely different set of things for other ones. Um, sometimes it's intricate plotting. Sometimes it's the interrelationships of the characters. Sometimes it's directorial verve. It's great if you have all of that. Is there a favorite type of crime film that you tend to gravitate to more than any other, or is there not? Well, you know, people know that I'm a huge John Woo fan. I think that a lot of people discount a lot of his work as a uh, flashy violence, but I think his work with Brotherhood and Betrayals are largely influenced by Melville, as a matter of fact. And it's probably well known that he taught Chow Yun-Fat how to hold a gun based on what he saw Alain Delon doing in Melville's Le Samurai. But in a way, I almost don't consider those to be crime films because they're more operatic, mm. I guess you can say, more full-bodied emotion. Whereas uh, there's a Hong Kong director named Johnny Toe, who's not terribly well-known in the mainstream. And a lot of his movies feel more Melvillian to me. He made one called PTU, which has an up all night feel about a cop who loses his gun and has to get it back. He did something called Running Out of Time, which is going to have a Blu-ray release uh, in the near future if it hasn't already. And that's more of a caper movie, but it's, it's one that I've always felt somebody should make this movie for the Americans who won't actually go see or don't have the opportunity to see uh, this old Hong Kong movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, He also did a movie called The Mission, which is about a team of crooks who band together to be a bodyguard team against a, a criminal. And that's another movie, which is sort of like this one, that it's it feels very stripped down. 
And it's about the interaction of the characters and not necessarily gigantic shootouts. In fact, there's one scene with a mall shootout, which doesn't even make physical sense, I don't think. But just the abstract way that he shoots it, you feel like you're watching something unusual as opposed to a policier that's just been blown up for the big screen. Mm-hmm. So We'll define these terms. Everybody's going to define this differently, but let's, let's define things for ourselves here. A crime movie, to me, is not just a movie that has a crime in it. To me, a crime movie is a movie that is specifically about the execution of a particular crime that also kind of has these other bits and pieces to it like an intricate plan. Rarely is a crime movie a simple plan. And sort of intricate characters with very distinct personalities who, you know, essentially are pieces of a crew. Like there's different, you know, ways that gets split in different movies. But to me, you know, sort of like we talked in season one about a submarine movie is not just a movie with a submarine in it. It has a particular set of rules that make it that. So do you feel like, am I on track with how you would define a crime movie? Yeah. And and as a matter of fact, that's you really put your finger on something about John Woo movies aren't really crime movies. They're action dramas, I guess you could say, as opposed to I don't know if you've ever seen Scott Frank's The Lookout. No. See it. It's uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, Jeff Daniels. Oh, okay. And it is based on a guy in a dire situation who gets involved with criminals and things take twists. You know, Scott Frank obviously adapted Out of Sight and has mm-hmm. done just so many great movies over the decades. And I was always, I don't know if it's because it came out from Miramax when Miramax was sort of losing its pull, but it's a gem. And everybody I've shown it to adores it. And a lot of people don't know about it. I will, uh, I will have to find that. Yeah. Any other crime movies generally that you would turn me and the rest of the audience onto and say, you know, here's ones. If, if you haven't seen it, this is I like this film. This is a good one. Go see it. Criterion put out a box or actually it was their Eclipse label a while ago called Nikatsu Noir, which Nikatsu was this film studio in Japan that in the 60s owned a whole bunch of theaters across Japan. And they essentially produced a double feature for their theaters every week. So it's a real machine. On the Nikatsu Noir box, you've got a bunch of movies by Seijin Suzuki, who had made one after the other after the other. And in this box, you've got when he was playing it straight and really doing these stripped down, tough little movies. And he made a later movie also on Criterion called Youth of the Beast, which is when he starts to get a little flamboyant Mm. and saying, you know, we all know what the pattern is. I'm going to have some fun with it. There's a Japanese movie series called Battles Without Honor and Humanity by Kinji Fukusaku. And if you're into a more godfather-ish, Sopranos kind of thing, Mm -hmm. uh, they made five of these movies in two years. The first one I know pretty well. That's a terrific movie. I've seen them all. They're worth a look. They made five in two years? Yeah. They made series pretty quickly there. Okay, Uh, Gangster VIP, another one that they made five or so movies most recently, you know, this is going to be a little controversial, but if you're looking for a sort of gloom and doom and fatalism uh, that only Cormac McCarthy can give you, <laughs> have you seen Ridley Scott's The Counselor? I have not. It's not so much a specific crime, but it's very much about one person who says, you know what, I think I'd like to dip my toes into this. And once something goes wrong for him, his fate is sealed. So it's really downbeat and dark. but. There's something kind of um, bracing about how bleak it is. I would consider that a crime movie, if anything, but it's a whole other beast altogether. I like my good share of bleak films. Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> a bleak crime film. So that does sound like something I should seek out. A lot out there to choose from. That's the point. A lot out there to choose from. That's a little bit of the geek out. Uh, let's get back to talking about some plot. We have a heist that is ready to go. When we last left our titular character, Bob, he was in his tuxedo. He's taken one last look around the apartment and Melville in a voiceover has told us now Bob will play his last hand and his destiny will be fulfilled. We pick up here with Inspector LeDrew having been given a call by Jean and his wife, Suzanne, that there's this whole thing going down and confirming that Bob is on a job and that it's a big job and he needs to go find him. LeDrew has gone to where he knows that Bob probably always is back at Le Le Carpeau, but he does not find Bob there. And so he goes on this hunt around town trying to find Bob before it's too late. And he's checking with Yvonne at Yvonne's bar and she doesn't know where to find him. And he leaves word with her. If you see him, just tell him this one word, Doville. I think he ends the check around town with Bob's landlady, uh, who we've seen a couple of times in, in previous scenes in this film. And there's no luck. And so what's left to do but call the casino? This step in calling the casino, it, it feels to me like to LeDrew, calling the casino is a big deal. He's finally got to give up on trying to find Bob, and now he's got to put into motion the wheels of capturing Bob. Um, but when he calls the casino and says, hey, there's this guy, and he's going to come rob your safe, and I thought you should know that, the casino manager, owner, or whoever it is that answers the phone, he doesn't seem very worried. And as a matter of fact, do you know who that guy is? Who? Francois-André, who is playing himself. That guy really had that job. Really? Yeah. Nice. So if you thought his performance was very natural, there you go. Okay. So we've got a casino manager who really is a casino manager and a guy that's going to rob that casino who may very well have robbed $800 million at some point in his past. <laughs> so he calls this guy and says, hey, you know, there's a robbery. It's going to happen. Thought you should know. And the casino manager is like, no big deal, right? He says, how do I know you're really a cop? Give me your number. Which, I'll call you back. That's realistic. I'm sure he would do that in real life. And goes on to tell LeDrew, look, don't worry about it. The security here at the casino, it's one of a kind. As we have an audience have known before, there's four locks, there's four accommodations, there's an elevator. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. And so LeDrew is like, okay, fine, but heads for the casino himself because he knows that's where Bob and everybody else is going. Even though Francois Andre says, we got all this stuff. I think that actually LeDrew says to himself, that's the information that I got from Suzanne. Mm -hmm. Although we don't see that. Well, Monsieur Andre might be like, no, no problem. Yeah, we got it. LeDrew is like, problem and rounds up his posse to go out there. They are just behind what's going on because Bob and crew are already outside the casino. Bob steps out dressed to the nines in his tux and heads in the front door to do what it is that he is supposed to do as his part of the job. The rest of the crew go to park the cars, it seems, over by the waterfront and waiting for the correct time to kick into motion the rest of the plan. He is Bob, that is, uh, inside the casino, I believe is supposed to check with Jean to make sure that everything on Jean's inn is copacetic and ready to go. But Jean isn't there. As we'll see, you know, Bob lets that go for other reasons. He's there looking for Jean. Jean isn't there. So when you're Bob, Bob LaFlambeur, and you're in a casino and you got a little a money tux. and a great tux. And, and you got some time on your hands. What do you do? Even though you have promised Roger that you're not going to gamble before this is all over, you conveniently forget about that promise and you start to gamble. I think it's really interesting the way that Melville kind of brings the viewer into that single-minded focus Bob suddenly has. 
where there's nothing else in the frame but a spinning roulette wheel. And there's nothing else for you to think about. You just almost instinctively like, I wonder where that's going to land. And Bob has that single-minded stare that he's hypnotized. Suddenly talking to Jean, not a concern. What is a concern is taking the four francs he has in his pocket and turning it into 40,000 or whatever. And so Bob starts at that roulette table, gets his money on in the right place at the right time, gets lucky. Well, that's unlike Bob, but manages to win, I think it's 80,000 in the turns of the wheel that he's got there. So do you take your 80,000 and you continue on and go look for Jean or remember why you're in the casino in the first place and go get everything in order for the big heist that you've been planning for for days and months? No, you go to the Schmend Fur table. So he goes and finds the high rollers parlor in the, and plays some Baccarat and starts to win again and keeps and, winning. And again. And, and again. And again. It, it's like an incredible run of luck. And you can see it's not just that the money in front of him is stacking up. It's not money, but they're casino markers. And they're the size of paperback books <laughs> or oversized Pop-Tarts. That's another thing that reminded me of. Um, <laughs> and not only do they line up, but you feel like everybody's looking at Bob. He's this stranger and he's racking it in and people are betting with him. And, and asking him to bet for them. It's not just a matter of I'm making a whole lot of money. There's something spiritually transcendent in this moment, I would say, for Bob. We talked earlier about, you know, Bob's identity being tied to being Bob Le Flambeur, being either, you know, Bob the gambler or Bob the guy who takes chances or, or, you know, however you interpret that. That is not just an addiction, although it is. You can tell it is. It is an innate part of his personality. And so in putting him in this chair, in this position where all eyes are on him and he's winning, doing the thing that he knows how to do. That's the endorphin rush for Bob. He is in his element at that moment. And he is, you know, he said he's born with the, whatever it is, the ace in his hand. This is the moment where that feels right. I mean, it'd be an incredible moment for anybody. Uh, unfortunately, it happens when he's supposed to be tending to a heist. Yeah, remember the time, you know, and how long they had to get everything together and they were supposed to break into this casino and there's going to be a lot of money. Remember that, Bob? No? You don't remember that? Okay. (laughs) Bob keeps playing and keeps playing and keeps winning and keeps winning and keeps, you know, sending these markers with couriers back to the cage or whatever to like take them and and put them safely away. And he he keeps winning and winning. Meanwhile, back in, uh, we've kind of been ignoring Anne's stories here. True. But before Bob gets to the casino, Anne's coworker says, thinking about your mink or your Cadillac, and Anne, in that sort of inscrutable way, just says both, which again makes me kind of wonder about whether she foresaw that she might have a run of luck uh, leading to riches as well. Because then we go to Bob's apartment and Anne enters. She's got a smile and she does this kind of sporty throw the key up in the air and catch it a couple times and enjoys the incredible view of a uh, sacre coeur, is it? Uh-huh. Uh, yes. And that's the end of Anne in this movie. Yeah, that's it. That's the last time we see her. Yeah. And it's part of what makes her so mysterious to me that I don't believe that she wants bad things to happen to Bob, but it's like she's got new shiny objects Mm -hmm. and that's all she wants. That's all she needs right now in life. That's all that matters. Bob's been in a good place for a long time. He has a moment, maybe, maybe, maybe of sanity where all of his winning and winning and winning suddenly has a couple of losing hands and you see him put away his checks and, you know, stands up from the table and starts to wander away. And it looks like, okay, now he's going to get down to business. But this is Bob and he can't help himself and eventually finds his way back to another seat at the table while he is gambling. 
Remember we said the crew had gone to hang out at the beach or whatever, like sit in the car and wait for him. They're watching their watch. Bob isn't watching his, but they're watching their watch. And it's coming closer and closer to 5 a.m., which looks like it's the designated time for these guys to do what it is that they're going to do. And so as the sun is starting to rise and it's getting close to time, Bob or not, they kick into action. He had actually set up a plan saying, unless you hear from me. It's a go, which I probably have. Not the best way, mm. but Bob does happen to catch a look at his watch and, and the narrator says, Lady Luck made him forget. He is late. He is late. And so he has to very quickly gather everything up. He has to run for his position of where he needs to be at the right time. And right here, remember back when we were talking about the dream sequence? when they were planning out how this heist was supposed to look and feel and, you know, if it went right, this is what it would look like. We are taken to that exact place here, back at the same camera angle, back at the same position where we were before, and we see these cars pull up in front of the casino as they had in the dream sequence and everybody, Paolo and everybody, jumping out of the car and heading into the casino. That's the part we see that matches the dream sequence. Only in the other direction, uh, what was not in the dream sequence were the cops. It's LeDrew and crew. Force. Is LeDrew part of this crew or I, is it the local police? You know what? I don't. I always assumed it was LeDrew. Because for some reason, I'm thinking LeDrew showed, uh, I know he shows up later. Yeah. But there's so many of these police that I don't know that LeDrew could get all of them to drive out True. to Dovi. I thought maybe he notified the local police. And boy, they are trigger happy. They jump out of their car. They've got guns in their hands. And Bob's crew kind of responds in kind. There are guns here. You know, we said don't bring your guns, but somebody brought some guns. And so yeah. there is a shootout that ensues. That wasn't part of the plan that happens here in front of the casino. In the shootout, Paolo unfortunately is hit. Paolo unfortunately is killed. Bob gets there just in time to hold Paolo as Paolo dies. Yeah. In no, his arms. Not in the plan. So this is where, and this is LeDrew that eventually is there to arrest Bob, correct? I've got that part right. Yeah. Yes, so, yeah. So after all this has gone down, Bob has gotten there too late. Paolo's been shot. The plan is ruined. It's not going to happen. LeDrew is there to arrest everybody, including and most specifically Bob. And so they, you know, put him in cuffs or whatever and stick him in the, the back of the car. And the, the funny part to me is as they're sticking him in the, in the back of the car, here comes a load of uh, porters from inside the hotel. Well, even before they stick him into the car, for some reason, uh, LeDrew just goes to Bob's breast pocket and pulls out the coin, the one that had the magical heart right. sound. And it turns out that Roger says, you know, I've known for 10 years that that coin is fixed, that it's got two heads. And Bob says, I've known for 10 years that you've known for 10 years. <laughs> and they say, so did Paulo, which I don't quite know what significance those lines are reaching for. Yes. But, uh, unless it's just sort of that they supported each other's illusions, specifically Bob's illusions. And you take that coin back to when we first saw the coin, or at least when the coin is brought into prominence in the movie is back when they're flipping to see who's going to have to buy the wine that night. And, you know, he flips the coin. Of course, you know, Roger loses and Roger has to buy the wine. Us as an audience, that's the first time we've ever seen Bob win. And so in that moment, yeah. it feels like, oh, maybe Bob's luck is changing. And now to come and find out, no, his luck wasn't changing. He was just cheating. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, when he leaves his apartment and he flips it right before he's going off, he kind of has that, hey, I like that result Uh kind of look on his face. Uh It's like, well, you should because you knew what that result was going to be. And while he is being put into the back of this car and we've had this conversation about the coin, you know, here come those porters from the hotel and what they're bringing out to him and putting into the trunk of the police car are stacks and stacks and stacks of French francs, which is all of Bob's winnings from having hung out in this casino all night. He's taken the money with him in the back of the police car. There is so many of this wrapped money that it takes a dissolve to get it all into the trunk. You know, <laughs> if you were to see them like put it all in there, armful after armful, there's no reason. It's gigantic. Kind of unthinkable. Maybe it was just the seriousness of the moment that came before it, but it was incredibly funny to me to watch them <laughs> yeah. like weighing down the back of the police car with all this money. So, okay, yeah. you got a police car that's stuffed with cash. You've got Bob finally taken into custody and put in the back of this thing, and he's, he's sitting next to LeDrew. Here goes the car. It takes off. It looks like we're taking, you know, Bob away for good. And the film ends with a small conversation between Bob and LeDrew that gives us a different perspective on how things are going to go. Basically, LeDrew is saying something about, well, you know, this is, you're going to be charged with criminal intent, which I think is pretty crazy when you think that the cops drew their guns first and Bob wasn't even there and he's going to be up for three years. It's sort of this negotiated conversation to where it starts out with, you know what, stuff's going to go really bad for you. You're going to get charged with everything and you could get with a good lawyer and there's kind of a wink and a smile there. With a good lawyer, you could get five years. And then somebody else in the car, one of the other cops says, or three years. And then it comes down hmm. to, or even acquitted. It kind of just keeps coming down like, you know, Bob, there is this out for you. There is this plan that you could, you know, if you just thought about it the right way, you could get five to three to acquitted, to which Bob caps everything off and finishes with, yeah. with an even better lawyer, I could sue for damages. <laughs> yeah. It's like this weird out-of-body close-up, almost an extreme close-up where he just kind of stares at the viewer and he's lost in the reverie. I think the excitement of having really hit it big. Yeah. He's certainly not broken up about Paulo at all. He is not. It's a little strange to me in the moment that there's not much more for Paulo, but you know, Bob is on to bigger and better things. Feels like even the cops are sort of rooting for this guy to get past this and get on and Bob is thinking even further ahead about not only how can I get out of this but how can I make some money on it in the process and uh, the last shot that we get out of this whole thing remember that really nice car of Bob's it's left sitting empty by the beach as the sun sets or as the sun rises or whatever it is happening at the end of the movie and that is the ending of Bob LaFlambeur. I think it's kind of banana pants because it's not what you're led to expect when you see a movie. You have all this build up for the heist and then it just doesn't happen. So in a way it's anticlimactic, but in a way it makes character sense because Bob just can't say no to a gamble. If you care about Paulo and Bob's relationship, that's out the window. Uh You know, we've spoiled this movie. So people who watch this movie after hearing us talk about it will not be surprised. But I think that's one of the things which might have made this movie hard for people to cotton on to when they first saw it. Mm. Do do you feel the same way? Like, were you kind of led to expect, okay, we're going to have this robbery and then to not have it because the lead character suddenly doesn't care enough about it to remember it? Yeah. The Paolo thing was the thing that I think that struck me more than the heist 
was the less that, you know, he does get a moment of, oh, no, he just died in my arm sort of thing. But not much is more made of Paolo's death by Bob. And that, to me, was kind of like, oh, really? You know, kind of a surprising letdown. The fact that the heist at the end didn't happen, I actually found that less of a disappointment and more of just an interesting twist. It was almost like it was a MacGuffin that lasted the full length of the movie. <laughs> and, you know, you get to the end and it didn't really matter, the heist. The rest of the guys weren't going to get any money, but Bob, even if he hadn't done the heist, he could have just taken his money and ran and everything would have been okay. So that the heist at the end of the day was inconsequential. The rug gets pulled out from under you as a viewer, I think. Yeah. But I think what I'm saying is, I think even if the heist had happened, for Bob, for the story that we've been and the motivation for Bob that we've been given of, he just needs to get his life together and he just needs a few bucks to do it. At the end of the movie, he didn't need the heist. So even if the heist right. had happened, I mean, it would have been more money, but he would have already satisfied the need by playing Baccarat, by doing what he does better. I was going to say he fulfills the emotional need. But, you know, I, I don't know if people, when they watch this movie for the first time, are saying, oh, I'm so happy that he fulfilled his emotional need as much as people want their narrative need to be fulfilled. That's the thing, folks. If you want a movie that uh, ties off loose ends and plays out everything that you have been prepped for, this may not be your bag. I don't know. This may not be it. <laughs> Let's play a game. Let's play You Can't Handle the Truth. Uh-oh. You Can't Handle the Truth is our multiple choice quiz segment here on Subgenre. I am going to give you, Steve, three multiple choice questions. You are going to answer them to the best of your ability. When two out of three of those questions are answered correctly, you are going to win our prize for the day, which, as always, is a prize I have no way of giving to you. <laughs> Today, you are playing for 800 million French francs, a currency that the euro has made worthless. Are you ready to play Steve Baumgartner? I'm a little scared here. I remember the tin year that I barely won on Dustboot. It was a close one. So I think this is going to be a squeaker as well. You did win. That's the important part last season. So let's see if we can keep that streak going. All right, here we go. Okay. Question number one. In 2004... At the Ritz Casino in London, three players won $1.7 million by using laser scanners and microcomputers to calculate what? Was it A, the number where a roulette ball would land, B, the unique chemical signature of aces in a blackjack deck, or C, the optimal angle to throw winning dice at craps? My Jean-Pierre Melville fandom did not prepare me for this. <laughs> uh, before you gave me the choices, I said, I'll bet this is a cards thing. So I'm going to say B. B, that about they were the trying about, about the chemical signature of aces in a blackjack deck? Yes. No, Ooh. I'm sorry. It was actually A. The players used scanners and computers to figure out the roulette ball's orbital decay. Uh, this is actually a strategy that is known as sector targeting. And uh, after a nine-month investigation of these guys, the police found that no real crime had been committed and the players got all their winnings back. There was a similar scheme that was used in the late 1970s by a crew from UC Santa Cruz who hid a less advanced but still effective system under their clothing. <laughs> Good for them. Good for them. All right. So we're down one question, but you still got two to go to win the French Franks. Let's go to question two. In the year 2000, at the Treasure Island Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, a man named Reginald Johnson tried what astounding heist strategy? Was it A, selling marked cards to the casino, then using them to cheat at poker? Was it B, robbing the same casino three times in a row? Or was it C, faking a heart attack at the buffet, then secretly grabbing chips as paramedics wheeled him across the playing floor? Oh, uh, I'm going to rule out C. You don't like the buffet heart attack? I love the buffet heart attack, <laughs> but it just doesn't have the ring of truth in this situation. Sure. 
You know, at first I was going to say A about selling the marked cards, but I seem to remember hearing something about B again, that somebody tried to hit the same place numerous times. I'll say B. You are absolutely Whoa. correct. Reginald Johnson robbed the Treasure Island Casino in July, then came back in October, then came back in December of the year 2000, actually shooting at and injuring some security guards in at least one of those attempts. In his first two attempts, he walked away with more than $30,000 U.S., but on the third attempt, he was captured and then pled guilty to robbery and attempted murder. I'm assuming did not get to keep the $30,000. Okay, so let's move on to question three. You've got one and one, win this one, and you've won the whole thing. Here we go, question number three. In 1992, Stardust Casino cashier Bill Brennan got away with stealing half a million dollars by doing what? Was it A, dressing up as headliner Don Rickles and collecting his check from a new payroll employee, B, taking a slot machine, quote, to get it washed, or C, walking away and never coming back? How does C get you money? I think the implication there is just taking the money, walking out the door, never coming back. The Don Rickles is really beautifully specific, but the number of people who could actually impersonate Don Rickles well can't be that great. So the washing seems, I can't imagine you just get like one machine washed at a time. So I'm gonna say C. I think there was money, he had access, why not? That is absolutely no. correct. Yes, the cashier, uh, Brennan, was assigned to count sportsbook money, and he took half uh, the money in cash and the other half in casino chips and walked out of the casino and was never heard from again. And I will say, the taking a slot machine to get it washed is my nod to the movie Stripes, where they take the Winnebago to go and get it washed. That means that you, Steve Baumgartner, have won You Can't Handle the Truth, and so... Congratulations to you. You get 800,000 francs. Don't spend it all in one place, Steve. In fact, don't spend it at all because it will get you nothing. Uh, let's do Rave Rental or Refund. Rave Rental or Refund is where we give our final thoughts on this film, Bob Le Flambeur from 1956. Was it a rave? Amazing. Everybody go see it now. I love it. Was it a rental? Eh, it's fine. I'll see it when I can see it. Or was it a refund? Nope, not for me. I want my money back. What say you, Steve Baumgartner? I really love Melville's later movies. This is a movie which I might not have come to if I hadn't liked those other movies. And I would say it's a rental. It's just a little bit too oddball, I mm -hmm. guess, in a way that I would feel uncomfortable saying to people, yes, you have to see this. I think you should go to YouTube for sure and watch the trailer and get a taste. And if that floats your boat, watch the whole movie. But for a lot of people, I can see them just feeling the movie doesn't deliver what they want. I can see where that's coming from. I started this, honestly and truly, just from title and description alone when, when we started. I kind of was like, ah, you know, it's not a refund, but I'm definitely sure that it's a rental. I'll watch it just to watch it. After having watched it, I moved further up that ladder. It's a good film. It's a solid film. I did enjoy it. Does it rise to the level of you must go see this now or else you haven't lived? Nah, probably not. I think for me, it is a rental, but it's at the top end of the rental scale for me bordering on rave. It's something which I should also say that as much as I love him, a lot of Melville's movies, they don't fully connect with me at the first viewing, even the ones that now I'm really hold close to me, with the exception of Army of Shadows. That's one that by that point, I was used to Melville enough that I could appreciate how he handles the movie. So hopefully this has been for people, they've already seen the movie once and now they can get into it. I will say for some audiences, uh, you know, myself included, a lot of times, foreign 
film generally might not be your first choice. French film might not be your first choice. Black and white film may not be your first choice. Films from earlier than the 80s or the 70s, you know, we're getting back into, you know, 60s, 50s, 40s films may not be your first choice. But this movie has a combination of things. I think if you give it a chance, there's something that's going to resonate with you. There's something in there that you're going to like, whether it's the atmosphere, whether it's the storytelling or the characters, whether it's the heist itself, whatever it may be. It's a pretty rich film. And so I would recommend it, if not as your first rental choice, then maybe as your second. Agreed. Well, Steve Baumgartner, thank you so much for showing up and being on this episode of Subgenre in Season 2. We, of course, appreciated you for all the hard work you did in Season 1. I'm happy that you're here in Season 2. I'm I'm happy for you. You're not having to do a second episode like in Season (laughs) 1. I have enjoyed this conversation. I hope that you have, too. This is your time. I'm going to open the mic. Tell the people uh, anything they should know about you. Promote whatever you'd like to promote. What do we need to know? Can I plug my OnlyFans? No, I I was hoping. Uh, I was hoping. I should have prepared something. (laughs) Just actually, thank you for having me, Josh. I love doing this and I love listening to subgenre every month when it comes out. As far as me personally, I'm not on Twitter. The only social media I have is LinkedIn. Look for me on LinkedIn. Tell them subgenre sent you. I believe you are the first person to plug yourself the only in on this show. Hey, Steve, thanks for being here, man. Oh, thank you, Josh. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, screenwriter and studio insider, Steve Baumgartner. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza, featuring Solar Flare. We know you need more of our show, so subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or pretty much anywhere else you choose to listen. And don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us our five-star review. Trust me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support Subgenre with your donation. You'll find the link to do that, more about our show, and all of our archived episodes from Season 1 at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at SubgenrePod. Come back for our next episode of Subgenre Season 2, Charming Thieves. But in the meantime... Please remember, we're all different. No matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki. Oh. <laughs>